0: Hey guys, thanks for checking out 83 weeks this week and every week here on Westwood one. I wanted to give you a quick update. We've mapped out the rest of the year and all the content we're going to be bringing you through the end of 2020. Usually I just get a month or two ahead, uh, but I've actually planned out the next eight months. That's right. We're all the way mapped out through the end of the year. And you're going to get all those shows early and ad free over at adfreeshows.com. We've had lots of requests about, Hey, uh, are you going to cover David Arquette in WCW? you darn right we are. It's coming up later this month, and you'll get it early and ad-free over at adfreeshows.com. We're on the heels of Eric discussing his 83 days in WWE, and man, we've got a fun show to revisit later this month. We're doing AWA Super Clash 4. We've had tons of requests to have Eric talk about the AWA. Well, it's coming, and I'm going to surprise Eric at the end of today's episode with a little teaser of what our bonus show is in May, Uh, but it is going to have the internet abuzz. We're also going to be covering some more fun stuff from TNA. Of course, we're talking about TNA uh, in their lockdown 2010 pay-per-view today as our subject, but we're also going to revisit when they made their Monday night debut, which is a very, very big moment in impact history and tons of old stuff from WCW as well, including the time where Eric Bischoff beat Terry Funk to win the hardcore title. Of course. Great American Bash from nineteen ninety six. What a big moment that was with the NWO and the big power bomb from Kevin Nash. We'll cover the Raw reunion, which was Eric's first day back with the WWE. Great American Bash ninety two. Uh, lots of requests, and 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 we're going to get there. The SmackDown on Fox debut from this past year, of course. Who could forget Road Wild nineteen ninety eight? What about the time that SummerSlam saw Shane McMahon and Eric Bischoff? All of that and so much more. Including some rather interesting stuff. Uh, how about when Eric was fired from WWE back in 2005? We'll cover that one. Man, there's just so much great stuff, and it's all happening early and ad free over at adfreeshows.com. In fact, if you were with us this past weekend, you would have been on a live Zoom call with myself and Eric Bischoff. That's right. You get to chat with Eric yourself. Why wouldn't you do this? Go check it out, adfreeshows.com and stay tuned for lots of silliness coming your way fall brawls starcades road wilds it's going to be a great 2020 thanks for checking out 83 weeks here on westwood one and hope you enjoy the bonus content and the episodes that you can only hear at adfreeshows.com oh and stay tuned to the end of the show where i surprise eric with that bonus show for may it's gonna have a lot of people talking Andre Thompson, and you're listening to 83 Weeks with Eric Bischoff. Eric, what's going on, man? How are you? Oh,
1: I'm social distancing my ass off, but otherwise, uh, having a having a great time. Things are, things are good in Wyoming. Mrs. B's healthy. Our daughter Montana is here. We're enjoying the hell out of that and just having to adapt like everybody else. But uh,
0: All good, man. All good. You know. This whole "I'm social distancing" from Eric Bischoff is a bit of a joke. I mean, you know your your state is most synonymous with the damn tumbleweed. Of course, you're social distance.
1: Yeah, I mean, there's. <laughs> I looked it up the other day. Um, there are six people per square mile in the state of Wyoming.
0: <laughs>
1: six people per square. I'm not. That's not a joke. You can Google Google it. Get your Google machine and Google it. But I, I did. And there's six people per square mile here. And and honestly, where I live, it's even, it's probably more remote than the majority of the rest of the state. So, yeah, it's a, it's a way of life here. And I don't mean to make light. And I know I say this every week. I don't mean to make light of what other people are going through. Because, trust me, I can well imagine, you know, being locked in a small two-bedroom apartment in, you know, Manhattan and not being able to go out and walk around and, and, and all of that. And I... I I can try to imagine it truth be told I probably can't I would go absolutely batshit crazy it would be a real challenge for me I'm sure I would adapt eventually but you know I'm so used to having space around me and quiet and solitude and I mean just visually you know you get up and I, we look around and I can see for 15 or 20 miles and surrounded by mountains and even the brief period of time that Mrs. B and I spent in Stanford, Connecticut um, with all the right intentions, man, it was, it was a mental challenge. So I can certainly empathize with those who aren't as fortunate to live in a rural environment like I do. But I I have to say things are good here. So good that sometimes I almost feel guilty.
0: Well, I feel a little guilty too because we're doing something a little different today here on 83 weeks. We have, uh, almost from the beginning, encouraged everyone to go fire up your WWE network and sort of see the backstory of what we're talking about, because we're usually covering something that happened in the WCW era of Eric's run, or perhaps even the WWE era of Eric's run. But today we're doing something totally different and we're going to recommend that you go check out the impact plus app. No, it's not April fool's day. We're going to break down some of Eric's time in TNA, specifically lockdown 2010. Before we start unpacking all about the show, Eric, uh, this is the first time I think you or I have participated with the, the impact plus app. What'd you think so far?
1: Uh, well, you you know, you and I spoke last night, I I was not sure of uh, where to find the app, but uh, you, you made that clear to me. And I, I went to my laptop last night tried to get the app and was unable to do so on my laptop. It just wouldn't let me sign in. I'm guessing that they don't have an app developed for laptops or home computers. Um, but when I went to my iPad, it was very easy to download. It only took a couple seconds. So my um, my first experience last night on my laptop, a little frustrating. Uh, early this morning, I got up about 4.30 had a cup of coffee, went right to my iPad, and I was in and watching lockdown from 2010 in about three minutes. So all in all, a good experience on a mobile app. Don't, don't try it if you're working off a laptop.
0: I think with a laptop, you just go to a website because uh, I actually watched a little bit of it on my computer, just going to a website, not trying to install like a desktop app, but it's a learning curve for all of us. I will tell you this. this is uh, I signed up maybe 10 days ago, maybe two weeks ago. And I wasn't sure what to expect. And, and I was hopeful that they had a lot of the early TNA stuff, like the debut show here in Huntsville and the old asylum days and all that. And they do. And I don't know why it's sort of become, I don't know, where so many wrestling fans are just LOL TNA, but man, there was so much talent here and there was sure. There's some silly stuff, but Lord, that's the case with all wrestling. There's some really good stuff that happened in TNA and impact over the years and I remember being a fan of this in a big way once upon a time, and I'm glad to be disconnected with it. So if you're, if you're quarantined and you're locked down and you feel like you no pun of, no pun intended, there you go. No pun intended. And you feel like you've reached the end of Netflix. I kind of recommend this man, seven 99 a month. I think it's a pretty good value. This is not a paid advertisement. I'm just saying from one wrestling fan to another, I dug it. Uh, and specifically today we're covering lockdown 2010, I guess we should sort of set the stage. This is happening April 18th, which is why we're covering it right now. So we're just about 10 years away from this. It's at the family arena in St. Charles, Missouri, right outside of St. Louis. There's 3,023 fans there. Uh, it presents nice enough on TV. It's the sixth lockdown event. What's interesting about lockdown is that every match takes place in a steel cage, hence the name of the event lockdown. And that's also what they did with the, uh, the previous lockdowns. This is also the, uh, the first lockdown out of the previous five to have a four-sided cage because before that TNA had been the six sided ring and we haven't really spent a ton of time talking about your run in TNA. So I just want to sort of set the stage and the concept you make your debut on the very infamous January 4th, 2010 show when TNA attempted to recreate the Monday night wars by going head to head with raw, of course, that doesn't last very long, but at this point, since we're now in April, you've been with the company for about four months, sort of set the stage for us about, you know, with some broad strokes, your first four months in the company, one of the big things I think you and and Hogan wanted to change is to move away from. The what you probably felt, and we've never talked about it, but I assume you felt the six sided ring was a little too gimmicky, maybe, or, or what's the reason to move away, and, and what were you feeling about your TNA run here four months in? Um, I,
1: you know, I wasn't excited about going to TNA. Uh, I, I did aspire to end up there. Uh, I kind of felt it was a step, not to sound like an arrogant prick, but it, it was a step down. You know, from my last run in WWE as a performer, certainly a step down from, you know, running WCW at the peak of Nitro's success and launching a new television format on TNT in Nitro and all the things that we did. It was not something that I was genuinely excited about, uh, in all fairness. I, I I did it. I made the choice to go to TNA. Uh partly because I was a little bit, I I was missing the business a bit. You know, Jason Herdivy and I had at this point in 2009, 2010, um, 2010 specifically what we're talking about here, we were absolutely crushing it in the television. We had our own production company, obviously, in Los Angeles, and we were just killing it uh, as far as creating, producing, and selling shows to various networks. So it wasn't again uh, a, a career move for me necessarily, but it was trying to scratch that itch a little bit. And mostly, the decision was driven by the fact that TNA really wanted they, TNA didn't want me. They, they weren't. They didn't aspire to have me on on their team any more than I aspired to be on the team. Okay, we had a mutual disinterest in each other. I think that's fair to say. Uh, But the common denominator was Hulk Hogan. Dixie Carter really, really wanted Hulk Hogan to join TNA. Hulk wouldn't consider joining TNA unless I was positioned to, at the very least, watch over his creative. I wasn't interested in in running creative or even being a part of the creative team on TNA, with the exception of those storylines and or characters that directly interfaced with Hulk hogan's character in his storyline within tna that was that was why i went there um and i negotiated hulk Steele. at the time this thing all went down um hulk was probably is in as much pain as i had seen him up to that point he had a hard time getting out of bed he was in so much pain his back was so bad That he he, it was so bad. He couldn't sleep. He couldn't stay awake. He couldn't stand up He couldn't lay down. He couldn't sit down. There was just he was absolutely miserable and At at one point, you know, he he said to me look Eric, I, I can't even talk on the phone I'm it's that bad and if I can get on the phone oftentimes I'm not really listening to what people are saying because the pain is so bad so he said, do me a favor and just negotiate my deal for me. Just know that you speak for me. Whatever you agree to, I'll agree to. Whatever you don't agree to, I won't agree to. Because I can't deal with it any longer. And I I literally took over the the negotiations for Hulk's deal. And as a part of that, he, you know, he jimmy hearted me in. <laughs> There's no other way to say it. Um I was there, not so much in the role that Jimmy has had for Hulk over the last thirty or forty years, but again to oversee the creative. Because Vince Russo was there, and and Hulk had absolutely as, n- nor did I. Neither one of us trusted Russo as far as we could kick him, um, which in my case was a decent, a, a decent fair amount, a fair amount of. A fair amount of uh, footage i could probably kick him but uh i said we still we just didn't trust him so that was that was the kind of context if you will under which i went to tna now i say once i got there and kind of got to know a few people and get a little bit more comfortable my attitude changed fairly quickly i didn't have uh I didn't have a chip on my shoulder, or I didn't look down on them. Probably the way now, when I say look down, I didn't look at it as much of a a step down as I probably did prior to getting in, Um, because there's a lot of good talent there. You know, I mean, Dixie had hired every ex-WCW star and WWE star that you know Daddy would pay for. Before we got there, I think that's one of the things I wanted to point out here. You know, because social media kind of has a tendency and the people on it to rewrite history. And all of a sudden, if you rewrite history often enough and repeat it often enough, it becomes the reality for many people. But the perception was, Oh, when Eric Bischoff and Hulk Hogan came in there and spent all the talk Dixie just spending all this top big money for all these top stars. Fuck. They were all there when we got there. We brought a couple guys in that we were really passionate about. Hulk in particular, but, you know, Sting was there, you know, Holland Nash had been there, Kurt Angle was already there, McFoley Foley was already there, um, Jeff Hardy had already been there, gone, come and gone a couple times or once at least that I can remember. Uh, so there was a lot of Booker T, you know, they brought Dusty Rhodes in. So they had been trying to um, stunt cast TNA for quite a while with big names and big stars and big money, by the way, uh, prior to Hogan and I getting there. Um, but that was, that was the context, you know, it was, it, it was not something that I was excited about initially, but after I got there, it was kind of like, okay, you know, I'm, I'm working with guys I love working with and I'm working with some new talent that I had never worked with and James Storm and AJ Styles and Motor City Machine Guns and, you know, the Pope and, you know, many other, I had worked with Pope previously, but there's, there was a lot of people there that I hadn't worked with before. And all of a sudden after a couple of weeks, I found myself pretty enthusiastic about it.
0: All right, Eric, let's run a timeout right now and talk about something that's very, very important. You know, we've often talked about top performers and peak performances. Well, top performers in business and sports often attribute their success to their morning routine, whether it's waking up early, setting their goals for the day, exercise, meditation, whatever it may be, but not everyone has time to do all that. Well, with Hydrant, you can jumpstart your mornings. Did you know that 75% of us are walking around everyday life, just chronically dehydrated. We are suffering needlessly, by the way, from frequent headaches, energy slumps, and poor focus. And it doesn't have to be this way. If you want to kick the coffee habit and you're worried about your energy levels, you want to try to avoid that morning sluggishness, that midday slump, you got to make sure you're hydrated. Of course, we're talking about our friends, a hydrant. They've created flavored electrolyte packets. You mix directly into your water and make hydrating your body easy and delicious. Each rapid hydration mix has the four essential electrolytes that your body really needs. Sodium, potassium, magnesium, and zinc help you hydrate quickly and stay hydrated all day. And Hydrant is backed by research. The formula was developed by Oxford scientists to provide perfectly balanced, efficient hydration. And there's no synthetic colors or artificial sweeteners. The formula is vegan, and you can choose between three different flavors or a variety pack. And Hydrant starts at just a buck a packet for a 30-day supply. So you can save even more with a monthly subscription. And I got to tell you, I've been using this, and it's made a huge difference in my productivity, which you've probably seen because we've been cranking out more than ever. Uh, And you can get 20% off your first order when you go to drinkhydrant.com and enter the promo code 83weeks at checkout. That's drinkhydrant.com, and the promo code is 83weeks. You're going to get 25% off your first order. That's D-R-I-N-K. Drink hydrant dot com. That's drinkhydrant.com. And the promo code is 83 weeks. It tastes good. It's easy. And you're gonna feel better. Lord knows I do. Check it out. Drinkhydrant.com. The promo code is 83 weeks. Talk to me about the uh the Monday night thing. I mean, I feel like that's probably another topic for another show. So we'll come back to it in great detail, but just as a broad stroke you felt passionately that Monday night was the right time or is that a decision somebody else made? No, I was very much
1: involved in that and I was very supportive of it. Look again, go back, look at the context, look at the timing, look at what was going on at that point. Um, TNA bringing Hulk Hogan in was a move that got a ton of publicity. It wasn't unlike the strategy or tactics. um, that I used early on in WCW, you know, 94, 95, 96 to, to get WCW on the map, to force viewers or to encourage viewers to sample the product. We believed with nitro, for example, if we could get the, which is why we went head to head with WWE or WWF at the time, we we knew that if we could get head to head and create enough noise, we would, Encourage, if not force, in a way, viewers to at least sample us, to at least stop in and go, "Holy crap, this is pretty good," or "Oh, this is kind of sucks. I don't want to watch it anymore." B- but you got to get them to say, It's like opening again. I've used this, you know, parallel metaphor in the past, but it's like opening up a restaurant. You can open up the greatest restaurant in the world, bring in a chef from. You know, one of the finest restaurants on the planet and do everything right and spend a fortune and staff it up. And da, da, da. But if nobody knows you're open, so what? Right? You got to make some noise. You got to have a big grand opening. You've got to do something big to get people to sample your restaurant. In this case, we wanted people to sample TNA. And we knew that by bringing in Hulk Hogan, we were going to get a fair amount of not as much as, you know, WCW did in the day, but we knew that we would still get a fair amount of free publicity throughout mainstream media. And within, obviously within the wrestling community, there would be an interest to see, Oh wow, how's this going to work? Even those people who, you know, weren't fans of Hulk Hogan were at least going to sample the product. If we were going head to head in a way that they otherwise wouldn't. So it was our way of putting TNA on the map. TNA made a big move with Hulk Hogan by bringing him in, by bringing Ric Flair in, you know, bringing Ken Anderson in, there were some you know pretty good names. Jeff Hardy, you know, returning to TNA, he had been there previously. So, you know, with all the new names that were coming in, along with some of the established names that were coming back, uh, we thought going head to head was a great way—not necessarily to recreate Monday Night Wars. That's that's a false narrative that I think got started, you know, in the very beginning. And I understand why. By the way, I don't think it's you know people trying to you know poke holes, but you know it it would have been a, a, an easy assumption to make that that was the intent that wasn't the intent the intent was to put as many eyeballs on the TNA brand as possible in order to build that audience, and we knew going in that there was a good chance we we're going to move back to Thursday night relatively quickly. It was a fallback position. We knew we had it, but we wanted to ride that Monday night head-to-head competition and suck as much publicity out of it and awareness and, and brand awareness as we possibly could before we did. And we did. You know, when we—I don't have the numbers sitting in front of me. I'm sure somebody can find them, but I think we delivered you know, in that January episode when Hulk and I first showed up. I think we delivered in excess of 2 million viewers. That's a Monday Night Raw rating, folks. That's how many people are watching Monday Night Raw on SmackDown now, somewhere between 2.1 and 2.5 million people. That's what we delivered when we went head-to-head with WWE in a soundstage in the middle of nowhere with a brand that, for the most part, nobody really knew. I'm talking about mainstream across the United States. Yes, TNA had its pockets of loyalists, and yes, it was popular. I'm not taking anything away from what TNA was prior to us getting there, but they certainly didn't deliver anything close to 2 million plus viewers. And we did for a couple of weeks. It's, that number started to go down, obviously, uh, on Monday nights. And that's when Spike TV said, okay, we're ready. Let's go back to Thursday.
0: Talk to me a little bit about the psychology behind putting it on monday night if you're not trying to start a monday night war is it akin to you know when when you see one gas station and, and they open up another gas station right across the street it becomes hey if you're a wrestling fan you're sort of adjusted to and accustomed to monday night is your wrestling night so if you're not really tickled with the price of gas across the street well, flip it over here to spike see what we got
1: check us out yeah i mean that's, that was exactly it i mean it's not a you know It's not a strategy that, you know, we created. It's not, it's competition. It's a way to get people to sample your product. And that's all it was, is how do we make the biggest, how do we maximize the addition of Hulk Hogan to the TNA brand? How do we exploit that to the maximum potential? How do we do it? And we thought going head to head because we knew it would make noise. We knew the the peripheral wrestling audiences or peripheral wrestling industry, as I like to refer to it now, instead of calling them dirt sheets. Um, the peripheral wrestling industry would be buzzing about it. They'd either be ripping it apart or they'd be putting it over, one or the other. didn't matter. As long as they were talking about it, they would be Encouraging people one way or the other to at least sample it out to either validate the criticism for going head to head or to validate the choice to, to, to do it and to make a big move. TDA needed to make a big move. They were they were quite successful as a n- small niche product in, 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 in a in certain segments of the country, right? They didn't. They had some of the same problems that that WCW had early on in, in, in that they weren't real popular on the west coast they didn't have a lot of midwest upper midwest kind of success they were they were very popular in certain pockets of the country but for the most part as a national kind of brand they were pretty pretty niche and bringing you know Hulk Hogan in with Rick Flair was a way to change that perception and that's all going head to head was was let's let the world know we're here And we're here to put on a good show and there's no better way to do it, you know, in terms of getting audience and and attracting curiosity, if nothing else, is to make a big move and go slap the giant in the face and see what happens.
0: One of the big pieces of TNA's brand identity uh, there for a long time. Now it didn't start this way, but eventually it would become a six sided ring. And, and during the quote unquote, Eric Bischoff regime that changes, what's the, uh, what's the thinking there?
1: Because it was fucking stupid. It just, look, I, I, and this is where I, I'm a little hard. I was a little harsh there. I've had a little bit of too much coffee this morning.
0: Already, no, let her rip, Tater Chip. That's what our listeners want. Come on. It, it was stupid, right? I
1: mean, I I understand. You know, the here here is the logic that I heard. I'm not going to name names, all right? But here's the logic that I heard. Yeah, but when people are flipping through the channels, they're going to see that six-sided ring and stop and go, hey, what's that? Maybe we should watch that. That was the entire psychology and and strategy behind this six sided ring. You're hoping to build an audience, so because if people are clicking, first of all, people don't click through channels anymore. Right? Punch you know you punch in your number, you scroll up and down. Right? I mean, even in 2010, it was just an absurd rationale and and psychology, if you will, or, t- or strategy to. to come up with a, a six-sided ring for no other reason than to capture the audience that may be surfing channels or, as it was put, clicking through channels and stop because they were going to see something that looked odd to them. Think about that. Yeah. That's pretty fucking stupid, right? Yeah. All right. So that was my, that was my approach coming in, you know. And I, I I was very vocal about it, and of course I pissed off seventy five or eighty percent of the people in a tna in office because of course they thought they were the greatest thing since sliced bread because they had no point of reference. None of them had ever been in the wrestling business before. None of them really knew anything about the wrestling business. They weren't really interested in the wrestling business. They were just interested in being kind of popular in Nashville, I guess, uh, in, in in certain. Pockets of the business community there walk around saying, yeah, we have a television show and spike TV. Yeah, great. Here's, let's go play golf. Um, it, it was just stupid. And when I, when I said, when I, and I tried, I just come in like a, you know, 800 pound gorilla and starts you know, stomping my feet and slamming my fists on tables or shit like that. It was like, okay, you want a six sided ring. How does it change the performance in the ring? What does a six sided ring mean? What's the statement it makes other than, hey, if you're clicking through the freaking channels and you see something odd, stop and watch it. Put that aside because it's too stupid to talk about. Let's talk about what does a six-sided ring mean to the, to the athletes in the, in, in the ring? Yeah. How does it change what they do? How does it make the product more interesting to watch? And the answer was crickets. You didn't have one. There was no reason for it other than to be an oddity in case you happened to be, quote-unquote, clicking through the channels. And I think the people that came up with that rationale probably still had the old-style televisions in their home where you actually had to turn a dial, you know, where you were forced to stop for a second before you moved on. Um, why, why that, was you- it, that was it. Because it, it, was, it was a distraction that didn't mean anything. And I, I, I'm, I'm against that. Why won't you just say who it was? Because it doesn't matter. Okay. And at the end of the day, what difference does it make? Joe Smith, Betty Boop, who fuck, who cares? Well, I mean, it doesn't I, I, matter I, whose I, idea it was, my, it was just,
0: here's my question. Is it Dixie Carter who, who was an advocate for the six sided ring?
1: Or was it someone every, else? Everybody in TNA was an advocate of the six sided ring. Everybody in the office, everybody in it, because they felt that it made them unique. It did make them unique. So does walking around with a cucumber stuck up your ass. It doesn't necessarily mean it's a good thing.
0: Yeah. So let's it's, break it's down just unique
1: for the sake of being
0: unique. That's, that's what I was getting to. It, it, it's, it's different for the sake of being different, not different for the sake of becoming more efficient or generating new revenue, or it, it wasn't, it wasn't uh, a differentiator in the marketplace that's going to drive revenue. It just, it's, we're different because we're different.
1: Yeah, it, it, was an, it was an odd little – it was an odd presentation that – now, look, if, if they would have taken the extra time or executed a, a, a more um, uh, interesting strategy and said, look, we've got this excited ring. Let's come up with an in-ring presentation to exploit it and to take advantage of it and to showcase it and to make the entire thing mean something. Now, if they would have done that, I would have been supportive of it to this day. I I I I truly believe that wrestling really, really, really needs to evolve. And not to not to go too far off track, and we'll talk about this some other day. But I think this whole you know coronavirus situation and empty arenas and WrestleMania in front of no crowd and the things that AEW are doing, I think there's There's going to be a point in time when people go, okay, that was a horrible situation, but here are some of the good things that came out of it. Here are some of the new ways of doing things that actually will continue to work. So there is, there are takeaways that we have been seeing, you know, over the last couple of weeks or almost, you know, month and a half now, whatever it's been, that I think are going to continue because, you know, necessity is the mother of all inventions or some something to that effect. And out of necessity, both WWE and AEW, um, have been forced to come up with new ways or more interesting ways of presenting their product. And I think it's helped the business. I know that sounds odd in the situation that we're in, but a year from now, we're going to look back and go, Oh yeah. Remember when they came up with this idea because they had to, well, we're still doing that now. Um, but that wasn't the case in TNA. TNA was just like, oh, let's come up with a six-sided ring because goddamn, you know, people aren't going to see it. They're clicking through the channels. They're going to hit the brakes and stop and watch the show. Damn. That was everybody, though, from top to bottom. Everybody in the office of TNA felt that way because that was their identity before we got there. And now here comes, you know, Hulk Hogan. And Hulk wasn't his he, – he felt the same way I did, which is why I ended up being the mouthpiece in a lot of ways, although I, I agreed with it, but I had to take the lead because Hulk wasn't good as, you know, that wasn't his role and he wasn't capable at the point. You know, it was hard just to get him out of bed and get him over to the Orlando soundstage to even put him on TV. So he wasn't, you know, integrated on a day to day basis in terms of, you know, the product and how it moves forward. But yeah, I pissed off everybody in TV by kind of, kind of telling them that they're, you know, the the one branding statement that they felt so strong about was it was dumb as
0: shit. I guess we should uh, we should mention because, and, and then I want to move on. But most of the guys who had the benefit of, you know, working in the in the wrestling business before they came to TNA, you know, whether it was Independence or WWE or wherever, they work in the six sided ring. The six sided ring is not only something to get used to as far as. You know, placement in the ring and location in the ring and your timing but it's also a much much harder surface to quote-unquote bump on from everything we've heard from everyone who's ever been in it including AJ Styles who was sort of a, a TNA stalwart for a long time who was very familiar with the six-sided ring even though yes he had done stuff in four-sided ring before of course but Going back to the four sided ring, I think it was even floated out there that AJ was like, "Oh my God, this is such a different. This is like wrestling on a cloud by comparison, right? Right, right. Everything, yeah.
1: I mean, I think we beat up the six sided ring as much as it deserves, but um, it was it was an odd idea with no rational purpose other than to hopefully, as I've said, I won't repeat it again, pick up people that were you know flipping through channels. Ah uh, and it pre- and it presented a big challenge for the talent in the ring, as you just pointed out, layered on on top of the fact that to the viewer it meant fucking nothing. I mean, i still I still get animated about it because it's still hard for me to understand why anybody would
0: think that that was a good idea. but you know, whatever, let's keep it rolling Coming here. Gone. Let's talk about some news that happens uh, eight days after you guys have your debut. Um, I think it's a, it's, it's a roughly a week after you're on, on, on live head to head on Monday night. Of course, we're talking about delivering, the, delivering two plus million viewers. Let's not forget that. Yes, let's not. Uh, but there's a, there's a backstage scrap. I can't believe this is a real thing between Kong and Bubba, the love sponge, uh, over the weekend, Kong had been working in a fundraising effort for Haiti. Uh, there was a severe earthquake there that Caused massive destruction. Of course, Bubba the Love Sponge is a shock jock in the Tampa area at the time, and uh, once upon a time was on Howard Stern's network and very controversial type figure. And he takes to Twitter to write "fuck Haiti" and other things like that. So the next time Kong sees him, she just starts swinging and punches him in the face, saying, "This is for Haiti. This is for Haiti." Hits him in the left cheek, and of course, Bubba the Love Sponge immediately takes that to the air the next day and. Uh, makes a big issue out of it and has Hogan come on and admit it was a sucker punch. And this is just a real mess. And you're probably in the middle of this, whether you wanted to be or not. Right.
1: Yeah. I was cheering Kong on Bubba, the low sponge.
0: I I never
1: understood. I mean, I, in a way I understand how Hulk and Bubba ended up being friends at the time. Hulk was going through all the crap he was going through. It was you know just beginning to go through all the crap he was going through, and it was bad. I'm talking about the divorce and all of the other things that were going on at the time. Of course, the the issues he was having with his back, the pain that he was in, the copious amounts of prescription drugs that he was taking legally uh, prescribed, which is even more mind blowing. I'm not going to get into that. It's not my place and I'm, I'm not a professional in that regard, but although I probably could be if I tried hard enough, um, the, the the state of mind that, that Hulk was in at that point, Bubba offered him a platform to tell Hulk's side of the story in the midst of all of this controversy between the divorce and everything else that was going on. You know, he, Hulk didn't have the WWE at the time. Uh, TNA wasn't really a big platform. Bubba the Love Sponge's show was his show uh, was one of the higher rated you know shows in the United States at the time. So and and it was the type of environment that you know Hulk could be relaxed in. He'd go over to Bubba's studio and probably stop start pounding you know Captain Morgan and Vicodin at about eight or nine o'clock in the morning. And then Bubba was all too all too eager to exploit the situation and and provide Hulk with the opportunity to say some some stupid shit in my opinion and to, and to do things that I think today he probably really, really regrets, but I never liked Bubba. I never, I, you know, I hung out with him a few times, meaning I went to the, uh, his studio with Hulk a few times, you know, during the day when Hulk was going to be doing something on air. I think I even did something on air with Bubba once or twice, but I never liked him and never trusted him. It was in a, there was nothing specific. It was just, you know, when you walk into a room, sometimes someone will stand out and you go, you know, there's just, I don't feel good about this. You know, I'm going to to avoid anything about this person that I possibly can. And unfortunately, I couldn't avoid everything with Bubba. Hulk was very, very high on him. And and, he was able to justify bringing Bubba into TNA to a degree because Bubba, with that national radio platform that he had, was able to promote TNA in a way that they couldn't afford to buy. So there there was a mutual benefit by having Bubba on the team, so to speak. But to me, he was such an ass, and he was a disgusting person in general. I'm sure he still is in, in every way. Um, so then when that fight went down, I was like, all right, Kong. I didn't really know her. I had just kind of gotten there and hadn't really worked with her or talked to her. And, but when I heard about it, I was like, cool hope she, hope she drew blood.
0: Well, it winds up becoming a bit of a disaster because she, uh, she quits the promotion and then, uh, files a lawsuit and, uh, she's trying to press charges based on a phone call. That was really horrific. It, it's just a mess. Is that fair to say? I mean, just, yo, yeah, it was a clusterfuck, you know, with all that's going on in the world right now, I think a lot of us are not going to be able to spend time with our mom on mother's day or. Maybe we're even going to wind up missing her birthday, but if you want to give her something that's extra special, I found the right thing for you. Of course, I'm talking about a hand done painting from a photo of us all from paint your life. I haven't been able to uh, spend as much time with some of my loved ones lately, and you're probably in a similar boat, but man, you want to talk about something special. Maybe you've got an anniversary coming out, but it's not like you can really go to dinner right now or Maybe you've got a big anniversary for your family. Maybe your parents are celebrating a big anniversary. Or maybe it's grandma's birthday or it's Father's Day. Whatever it may be, Paint Your Life is the way to still get that real, meaningful moment this holiday season or for your special occasion during a rather difficult time. When I first heard about paintyourlife.com, and I knew that this was this great of a painting by a world class artist, all done from a photo. I thought it was a genius idea, but I also thought it must be terribly expensive. And I also think it's worth mentioning that, you know, right now we probably need to be giving more meaningful gifts than ever. You know, when we're spending time with our loved ones, it's the it's the experience we share that and the connection we make that really matters more so than the card or the gift. But when you can't be there. Why not memorialize one of those special moments from the past? PaintYourLife.com, man. I really believe in this. I have them hanging in my house. My mom has one. My father-in-law has one. It is a go-to for my family, and I want you to see why. Go take a look at PaintYourLife.com. Or, man, go check out their Facebook page and check out our customer review. I just found this one. We have our grandchildren's portraits made when they were between 18 and 24 months to have in our home, We are digital grandparents as none of our grands live close and we visit by FaceTime. Mostly when they call us, they love to see their pictures. This one just arrived and it's perfect. The 20 month old knows exactly who he is. It's pretty cool, man, to think about how paint your life is really bringing families together, especially right now, go check it out. I can't recommend it enough. And let me explain how this works. You get a professional hand painted portrait created from any photo at a truly affordable price. You choose from a team of world-class artists and you work with them until every detail is perfect. They have a really easy to use user-friendly platform that allows you to create custom-made hand-painted portraits in less than five minutes. There's a quick and easy process and you get your hand-painted portrait in just about three weeks. You send any picture, yourself, your children, family, a special place, a cherished pet, or combined photos. And it is a home run for a birthday, an anniversary, a mother's day gift, It's meaningful. It's personal. It can be cherished forever. And you're just going to feel close right now when you can't really even be there. There's never been a better time to do something like this for your mom too, man. I've already got mine ordered. Paint Your Life portraits are a gift that will keep on giving. I cannot recommend it enough. Go check it out. PaintYourLife.com. And by the way, when you use the keyword Eric, you're going to get a hookup. And I want you to understand what we're talking about here. At PaintYourLife.com, there's no risk. If you don't love the painting, your money is refunded, guaranteed. And right now is a limited time offer. You get 20% off your painting. You heard me. 20% off and free shipping to get the special offer. Just text the word Eric to 64,000. That's Eric to 64,000. Get 20% off when you text Eric to 64,000. Paint your life. Celebrate moments that matter most. It's Eric to 64,000. Let's talk about something else that, uh, made the news before we get into lockdown. Um, I guess you were doing a radio interview and you were asked what talent that's a part of the WWE roster would you like to have? And of course you mentioned John Cena and Randy Orton, and then you mentioned Chris Jericho and a lot of people were surprised that you had mentioned Jericho because of the way things ended between the two of you in WCW. And I think when pressed Hogan would say, well, I don't see Jericho as a heavyweight champion and neither does Vince McMahon. Obviously the, the, the rap on Jericho has, has changed over the years where once upon a time he was positioned as a cruiserweight, but then he would go on to become the undisputed champion and WWF would try to push him to the moon, giving him wins over Steve Austin and the rock on the same night. And he would headline WrestleMania 18, although most people would probably consider Hogan rock the real main event, even though it didn't go on last. And, and then he had, you know, a bunch of memorable things he did in WWE. But these days he's sort of top banana in AEW. did you see that as maybe a possibility of, you know, maybe he could be one of our top guys here at TNA, or was that never discussed as best you recall?
1: No, it was never discussed. I mean, the radio interview was who would, you know, look, Randy Orton was never a possibility either. And I doubt that a conversation with John Cena would have been very productive. Let's be realistic about all of that. So when I was asked in a radio interview, you know, know, if you could wave a magic wand and, you know, have the wrestling fairy show up and, you know, put a contract under your pillow, um, which three contracts would you like? And, of course, Cena and Randy Orton. I've always been high on Randy Orton and I always will be. Cena, Orton, and Jericho were the names that came up. Not because I thought there was any real possibility of getting any of them, or even having a conversation with them about it. It would have been embarrassing to try, but it was like one of those, you know, hypothetical "what, what if" you could have anything you wanted type of questions. Um, and by the time I was asked that question, Jericho had already experienced, you know, the success and the positioning that that you know, you you. you uh, referenced in w w e so yeah, it was an obvious name for me. I'm not sure why Hulk reacted the way he did. I'm not sure Hulk knew why he reacted the way he did. I'm not sometimes Hulk tr- tries to stir the pot yeah and 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 create a little bit of controversy, you know as in, in some of his responses. He may have been doing that then. I don't know.
0: Let's talk a little bit about some other guys who are coming in. Rob Van Dam was going to come into the promotion around this time, and I think once upon a time it was written that. Uh, had you actually gotten full control of WCW in 2001, he was going to be one of your top stars. Do you remember having conversations with Rob about, hey, if I get a hold of this thing with Fusion Media, uh, I want you to be one of our primetime players?
1: Yeah, as a matter of fact, uh, I had a meeting with Rob in, I had an office in Los Angeles during that point in time over at Mandalay Studios. And I, I had a meeting with Rob and and we did we did have a a great discussion. I was at one point when it looked like the fusion media deal was going to happen. Uh, Rob was one of the, the the focal points of our discussions in terms of talent.
0: One of the other talent that we should discuss here, Sean Morley, he's going to leave the promotion in March, Sean Morley, of course, the former Val Venus, he would uh, take to his Facebook page and write, yes, folks. I'm through with TNA as I want to wrestle in Mexico. I was going to perform for both TNA and CMLL, but now the switch to Mondays for TNA and the fact that TNA had nothing solid yet. Mexico, here I come. Uh, So your old chief of staff, not long for this TNA world. Any memories of this?
1: Yeah, I mean, Sean was there briefly, and I I always got along really well with Sean lived in Phoenix uh, as as I did uh, during my run with WWE as a talent uh, back in 2002 to 2000, whatever it was, five or six uh, so Sean Sh- and I would, not only did we work together on television for a period of time, but we were both flying back to the same place. And usually, you know, we were on the East coast when we were flying back for the most part, um, you know, we were on the plane together in first class for four or five hours and, you know, got to know each other really well outside of the, the wrestling business. And I always got along with Sean really well. Um, was anxious to have him come in to TNA because he was a good talent and a good character, but it just didn't click for whatever reason, you know, chemistry, timing, whatever. Uh, it, it just was square peg, round hole. Just didn't really work. Not because Sean wasn't a great talent. He was not because there was an opportunity for him there. There was, but it might've been timing. You know, we may have brought too many people in, and, and, you know, kind of shared the spotlight with Jeff Hardy returning and Rob Van Dam coming in, Hulk Hogan coming in, Ric Flair coming in. Oh, and by the way, here comes Sean Morley. Might've been a little bit of that. Um, but you know, I always enjoyed Sean.
0: Let's talk a little bit about, um, Ric Flair getting back into not just the wrestling business, but actually wrestling. Um, the March 8th impact, we would see Hulk Hogan and Ric Flair wrestle each other in a tag match. Of course, it's Hulk teaming with, uh, Abyss and Flair teaming with AJ Styles. who has been positioned to be his protege here. And this is essentially Rick's first match since his retirement a few years earlier at WrestleMania. I guess we should mention he did the Australian tour that we've briefly touched on before. Uh, but this is the first time that the masses are really seeing it. And Shawn Michaels would be asked about this in the Baltimore sun. And Sean would say, he did call me. He called me to let me know once he was going to do the Hogan match in Australia. He wanted to know if it was okay. And of course I told him it was. And then he called again to say he was going to sign with TNA and ask the same thing. There's nothing you can say. I certainly don't have what it takes to look at someone and say, don't go make a living. Uh, I told him that for me, nothing can take away that special moment. Anything after that, I feel for him, but I'm certainly not angry or disappointed or anything. I would like to think that Rick probably... Would have liked to have that been his last match too. But the fact that it couldn't be, I understand. Those are circumstances that I certainly can't control. And one of the things you have to understand is that if you're going to be a friend of Rick's, you sort of know there's some baggage that comes along with that. Certainly the older I get, the more I'm learning about conditional situations, the difference between that and unconditional friendship and unconditional love. So it's a big deal, of course, because they had quite the send off. For Ric Flair in the WWE and his retirement match at WrestleMania 24. But now he's throwing his hat back in the ring and wrestling on TV. Did you remember having some sort of heart to heart with Rick or, or was he gung ho from the start?
1: No. And it did all start really, uh, in Australia. Uh, we had such a great time on that tour and, and it was a tough tour. There were, you know, there were things from a business perspective uh, with the promoter and promoter kind of falling short on a couple big issues and things like that. But but from my fr- from a a locker room perspective um, and just the the working environment with all of us. And, you know, one of the things I will say that the promoters and they did, you know, they did their best. It's, I'm not being critical of them. It is what it is. And they hadn't produced wrestling before, and they made some bad assumptions and bad decisions based on those assumptions. But um, for the most part, you know, when the show was over, the the group of people that we had there that we put together really had a blast, and Hulk and Rick especially. I mean, there's a there's a special relationship there, and 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 has been for a long, long time. And I think because it was so much fun, in addition to the Look, Rick was in a tough spot business-wise. We all know that. Don't need to go into details about it. None of my freaking business, nor anybody else's for that matter. But he had to make a business decision, and there was an opportunity there, and a good opportunity. And I'm sure I, – I agree with a lot of what you, you read in terms of um, Shawn Michaels' quotes. I think that was a very honest um, and clear – representation of what Rick was going through and how Sean felt about it. I, it makes me feel good to he even hear that because it was a very mature, honest way to respond to, to, to the question that Sean responded to. But, you know, Rick had to make a choice and a decision. And I'm, you know, you know, I mean, obviously, you know, Rick as well, or maybe better than I do at this point. Um, Rick, Rick is like a lot of talent that have experienced the highs of performing in front of a live audience. And in some respects, they just can't get that needle out of their arm. And I think Rick is as big of an addict when it comes to performing in front of a live audience as anybody I've ever met. And especially back in 2010, he slowed down now. He's probably a little more realistic now. Um, but back in 2010, there was that part of Rick Flair that was like, oh, hell yeah, let's go. We can still do this. Because he was missing that that reaction from the crowd. But, you know, compromising, I guess, if, if you want to put it that way, compromising the finish of that WrestleMania match was kind of a big deal. And I, I was concerned about it. You know, I was concerned about how fans were going to react to it because that WrestleMania match with Shawn Michaels and the way it ended was so dramatic. It was so believable. It was so emotional. It was so perfect. It was perfect in many, many ways from a storytelling point of view, from a career timing point of view, from an execution perspective on the biggest platform in the world, WrestleMania. I mean, how can you get a better ending to a career than that? And then to pretend none of it ever happened and step into TNA. I'm sure that there were, I'm sure Rick had to struggle with that to a degree.
0: Let's keep it moving here. And let's talk a little bit about, Some things you're doing. I assume it's you. This feels like an Eric Bischoff move. Meltzer would write. They've hired a consulting firm to look at their TV viewing ratings. And why the numbers have gone down by interviewing fans. And yes, this is just what WCW used to do when they would do extensive surveys of fans and then do the opposite of what the survey suggested because they were so indoctrinated into one view of wrestling that when viewers told them they wanted something completely different, they ignored the results. So... Let's pretend that the criticism and sort of snark in that is not there. Was it your idea to say, Hey, you know what? If, if, if we're dipping a little bit, let's just go ask them, let's figure out what they want and let's try to give it to them. That feels like a Bischoff thing. It's a television industry thing, right? It's something that, you know,
1: Dave Meltzer wouldn't really know anything about, although he pretends he does. It, it, there's and again, I'll, you know, I'll go back and I'll reference, um, Jason, Hervey, and I had been having a tremendous amount of success in creating, conceptualizing, developing fresh new ideas, executing them, producing them, and selling them to various cable networks. And in that process, forget about what I did in WCW, which, which was really driven by Brad Siegel and TNT. That was not an Eric Bischoff um, initiative when we started doing focus groups for what was going to become Nitro, that was a Brad Siegel decision, and 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 he was a catalyst for it. I just happened to be along for the ride. In the process, I learned a ton. I I still think, you know, that era in '95. A couple months I spent in the spring of '95, in a summer, early summer of '95, getting ready to launch Nitro. And going around to the various focus groups, which by the way, you might want to send Dave Meltzer an email. I know you're friends with him. Send him an email. That's you know, that every television network in America does the same thing. They focus group, their audience, right? That's how you get information. It's not some abstract Eric Bischoff idea because I didn't know what I was doing. That's what the top executives in the industry today all do the same fucking thing. Now, was it my idea to integrate or utilize focus groups uh, in TNA? Absolutely, it was. Nobody else in TNA's, at TNA was going to do it. They were going to go down and talk to the people in the cafeteria, the office building they leased, and ask them what they thought. <laughs> that was their idea of focus groups and research. Um, but what I did is I went to Spike TV because Spike TV was a legit, <laughs> obviously, Spike TV, now you know, owned by Viacom now the Paramount TV network. Um, Obviously they had a lot of, they were very familiar with focus groups and they were very familiar with market research. And Oh, by the way, they were thrilled to death that somebody within TNA actually was taking a television approach to the television business. Imagine that. Imagine coming up with a strategy that was a little bit different than, Hey, let's come up with this excited ring because somebody changing channels might see it and stop. That was one kind of strategy versus, hey, let's do some focus groups with wrestling fans from around the country and get, an, get a vibe on how they're feeling about the product in general, WWE, TNA. Let's get a general perspective of how they feel about the industry, and let's get, let's get into the weeds a little bit and really focus group some of the TNA product to find out where we can make a difference so we're not just all sitting in a room jerking ourselves off because we all think we know what we're doing. That was, and today, you know, Kevin K, Scott Fishman over at Spike were thrilled to death. And they were the ones that actually put the the focus groups together and paid for the research. Because they wanted to know.
0: Yeah, no, I get it. Hey, what if you could combine all of your credit card debt into one low fixed monthly payment? Now you can, and it's easy with my friends at Lightstream. Get a fixed rate credit card consolidation loan from as low as 5.95% APR with AutoPay. You pay your credit card balances and save thousands in interest. Get a loan from 5000 to to $100,000 with absolutely no fees. The application is 100% online, and you can even get your money as soon as the day you apply. Lightstream believes that when you have good credit, you deserve a low rate and great service, and that's exactly what they deliver, and man, they delivered for me. I've told the story a thousand times here on the show. I had my best lending experience I've ever had. At lightstream.com i applied online they overnighted me a check i got it the next day i was able to go down to the car dealership negotiate like a cash buyer and get myself a great deal i'm talking about the best deal i've ever had when i financed a car and right now just for our listeners you can get an additional interest rate discount to save even more now the only way to get this discount is to go to lightstream.com 83 weeks that's lightstream.com 83 weeks for an additional discount that's L I G H T S T R E A dot lightstream.com slash 83 weeks. Of course, this is subject to credit approval rate includes half a percent auto pay discount terms and conditions apply and offers are subject to change without notice. Visit lightstream.com forward slash 83 weeks for more information. Let's, uh, let's talk about something else that I know that you're going to laugh at this, but it's, it's written. So I, I just want to bring it up. Uh, Bischoff also claimed that Hogan was offered the Mickey Rourke role in the wrestler, uh, quote, Hogan did turn down the role. It was offered to him by one of my agents at William Morris agency. When they rep my company, you know, I, I don't know that I remember hearing that. I mean, I know that they had conversations with Ric Flair. I know that they had conversations with like Greg, the hammer Valentine. Did they want Hulk Hogan to have the, the, the Mickey Rourke role that that's news to me, That it also feels in fairness to, to your great friend and uh, my childhood hero, a little bit like the, I should have had the George Foreman grilling machine, but I got the thunder mixer instead because I didn't answer the phone. Was he supposed to play in the wrestler? He had the opportunity.
1: I'm sorry. Do you remember the director of that movie?
0: Darren Orlovsky?
1: Yeah. I met with Darren. Darren, Darren wanted to meet with me in New York about being in the movie as well. So it's not like, there were a lot of people, you know, Ernest the Cat Miller was in the movie, for sure. crying out loud. Sure. <laughs> so, uh, you know, Darren reached out to a lot of people in the industry and early on did reach out to Hulk. I'm trying to remember now the timing of it all. I think there were actually two scripts. I could be wrong about this. I'm really just flying off, you know.
0: Yeah, from the hip. Here we go. From, from the
1: hip from 10 years ago. I think there were originally two scripts. Not sure where Darren and, came but, in. He might have come correct. in on the first one. He he, he, he I, I don't really remember, but I I do remember that yeah they did reach out they sent Hulk a script and here's the challenge when when you read scripts and I'm I've just now over the last year to started eva- not evaluating but I've had people send me you know feature film scripts to gauge interest and things like that and unless you're kind of experienced in it and you're used to it and your brain processes a script a movie script in a certain way. For people who are unaccustomed to looking at a movie script and have only looked at television formats, it, you don't really get the clear picture in your head. You can't see the mm. scenes the way the writer is really trying to communicate them, because you're not used to that format. And there's, there's, you know, there's, you know, interior, exterior, pan here, pan. I mean, there's a lot of direction within the context of a script. That if you're not used to seeing it, it just distracts you and therefore takes you kind of out of the moment in terms of trying to visualize things. So I think you know, Terry, you know probably looked at that script and went, eh, I don't want to play a broken down old. Be- I am a broken down, old beat up wrestler. Right. I don't want to play one in a movie." Sure. He was trying to he was trying to run away from the reality, not embrace it at that point. Um, so yeah, he
0: did he he did pass on it. It's remarkable. I mean, once upon a time I think uh Nicholas Cage was even attached to that project. So it's just fun to think about. I guess we should also mention one of the other things you're you're working on in this era is micro championship wrestling, is that right?
1: Yeah. Yeah, we did micro championship uh True TV, which was a Turner company or I think still is. Uh True TV wanted they were really high on it. And actually uh, Hulk because he had the relationship with uh, Johnny. God, I can't remember Johnny's name. Uh, Balt had a guy that was kind of like the face of. He, he wasn't a, a small person, um, but he was kind of the face of it. I just can't remember Johnny's last name. Uh, he's since passed away, unfortunately. But Johnny and and Hulk were friends, and um, Hulk called me up and said, "Hey, I you know, got these this group of, you know." Midget wrestlers, you know, it's called micro championship wrestling. They're already, you know, touring. They're playing state fairs and bars and nightclubs and bar mitzvahs and birthday parties and all kinds of stuff. And it, they're they're a cool group of people. You should talk to them. And I did. I picked up the phone right away and had a couple conversations with some of the key people. And I went, you know what? They're already touring. This isn't like we're going to you have to go out and recruit a team of, of, of midgets that know how to wrestle or teach them how to wrestle and pretend that we're touring and pretend that there's stories going on this shit already exists, right? which is half the battle or three quarters of it. Now let's just figure out a way to make it a television show. And, and we did true TV loved it. We, we produced, I don't know how many episodes, six or eight different episodes of it. And, uh, you know, it was, it, it was a fun experience. We made a ton of money and, You know, glad we did it. Uh, It wasn't wasn't creatively, you know, my best work ever, but it was from a transactional point of view, uh, one of the better deals that we did.
0: Johnny attitude is who you're thinking of. Johnny green.
1: Johnny Green, Johnny Green, Johnny Green. I was going to say Johnny Green, but I thought I was mixing him up with somebody else. But, yeah, Johnny Green. And Johnny was a great guy. He was passionate about microchampionship wrestling. He really, really was. He worked his ass off. as did a lot of the the wrestlers themselves. They were really passionate about it. They are really great people. Really great people.
0: Let's uh, let's talk about something Vince McMahon said as we, we head into this show. He does an online interview where TNA comes up, and he says, quote, we're in a different business. We're in the entertainment business. They're in the pro wrestling business. It's different markets. When they moved to Monday nights, they threw the kitchen sink at us. And only did a fraction of our audience. It doesn't speak well for the type of product they're trying to present with the tawdry blood, blood soaked action. I don't think that's what the culture wants these days. And Dixie Carter responds by saying it was an honor to be called tawdry by the King of tawdry. Uh, what do you think of this interview? I mean, clearly this is something that, uh, would have been passed around the offices in Nashville, would it not?
1: Yeah, probably. I I was never in the office. I, I mean I was occasionally in the offices in Nashville, but I avoided it like the flu. Um, so I don't know, you know, how it was received internally. Uh, I thought Dixie's comeback was pretty pretty solid. Sure. V- Vince's comments were stock. He used to say similar things about WCW when we right before we started stomping a mud hole in them and forced him to change the way he produced his shows and embrace a new way of telling stories, uh, which up until late November or late in 1997, he had resisted until he couldn't afford to resist it any longer, and he followed our lead. But prior to that, it was all, oh, WCW is just wrestling. (laughs) We're, we're, god damn, we're WWF. We represent sports entertainment smiles on the faces of people we make movies god damn it we don't produce wrestling that was you know that was Vince's you know way of separating WWF and and WCW at, at the time and he went right back to it and look to it to a large degree you know there was no comparing TNA to WWF was it WWE in 2010 or had they changed? The no, WWE? it's
0: WWE. Yeah. It changed okay. back in '02. Let me just run a timeout right now. And I'm going to leave this in, but this is just me talking to my friend, Eric, dude, we, the fans, we fucking love when you puff your chest out and you're the real goddamn Eric Bischoff that we grew up with and not this fucking, I don't know, well-rounded introspective. Let me be careful how I say this. Would you just fucking let it rip and you're, the guy that we remember from TV, maybe more of the character and not older, wiser, Eric Bischoff. This is fucking <laughs> great, man.
1: I, you know, it, it, it's funny because you know, fans or listeners, fans, listeners, whatever you want to refer to them. I don't know that they know this, but you and I don't prep much
0: at all. No, we'll have a brief no. conversation about, Hey, what are we doing this week? And, and then you, you go watch it and I'll watch it. and And then we talk about it, but there's no. You say this and I'll say that. That doesn't no. exist.
1: No, we we don't have a, a we don't have any talking points laid out. You know, you do send me notes, and I'm going to be truthful with you. Sometimes I read them, sure, and sometimes I don't. Right, and the reason I don't is because I like to react naturally. Yes. to to your your questions, and if I know what's coming. You're going to get an answer that's been – even if I don't want to, subconsciously I probably sanitize it or yeah. prefabricate it. And I think that's a horseshit way of doing a show like this and I don't do it. So sometimes it's about – it's not because I want to be the well-rounded, more you know, older, wiser version of Eric Bischoff. But this show – and I love it one of the reasons I love doing this show with you is because we're presenting something different. We're generally talking about the business of the business or aspects of the product that otherwise don't really get covered a lot in the multitude of other wrestling podcasts that are out there. I don't have great wrestling stories like Bruce Pritchard. Right. I don't have 20 or 30 years of being on the road with guys and relationships with the talent to draw from like Bruce does. I'm not a funny witty guy like Tony Schiavone. I'm, I'm not, you know, I didn't spend 25 or 30 years in the ring like Arnie Anderson. You know, I don't, there's a lot of things I can't bring to the table, but one of the things I can bring to the table is the business side of the business. And that's mostly what our show yeah. tends to be about. However, there are times when if you ask me a question, this just happens to rub me in a certain way, a la the six sided <laughs> fucking abortion of a ring. <laughs> There are certain kinds of questions that you ask me that elicit a certain kind of emotion that I can't prefabricate. I'll try to open up my mind a little bit more and allow that younger, dumber, more volatile Eric Bischoff that we all used to love to hate um, come out. But for the most part, when we're talking about the business of the business, it's a little hard to get there. But, you know, that's what this is a live show. I know it, you know, when people hear it hearing something that was recorded, but for you and me, live this detect- is live, this is live, live. Yep. And that's what I love about it.
0: Well, I just like when you sort of take the uh, antagonistic approach because that's who you are. I mean, you're a disruptor by nature. You, you're the guy who would wear cowboy boots to a meeting and that's what we love about you. And and when we see some of that come through the podcast, I mean, I know, you know, we don't usually do Skype with video and we're not now, we're just in Skype audio, but I'm grinning ear to ear because some of that's coming through and it's just fun, man. It just is. Well, it's fun for me too. Okay, Eric. I feel like we need to run a timeout right now and tell everybody about my real life. Of course, real life is a lot different for all of us these days. And we hope we're providing a fun distraction for you right now with the podcast every day here on Westwood one, but in my real life, I'm helping people save money and I absolutely love my job. I'm talking to you. If you're in a 30 year loan, you're overpaying your single biggest bill and you may not even realize it. Especially if you've got credit card debt, you know that that interest rate's too high. The average interest rate on a credit card right now is more than 20%. But when you think about the fact that the interest you pay on that is also not tax deductible, it really makes a no-brainer to take a look. See if you could save yourself some money with SaveWithConrad.com. Here's what we're talking about. At SaveWithConrad.com, we're certainly going to get you a better interest rate. That's a no-brainer. You're going to pay less interest when you go to SaveWithConrad.com. So if you'd like to keep more of your own money, You got to go to savewithconrad.com. Have I said that enough yet? Go to savewithconrad.com. But when you go, you'll get to skip a couple of house payments. That's probably going to come in handy right now. There's a lot of uncertainty in the world right now. And knowing that you don't have to pay your single biggest bill for the next two months. And instead you get to keep that money in your own pocket. That's pretty awesome. And in addition to that, when it's time to start making those payments again, you're going to have a cheaper monthly payment. We routinely help our listeners say five, six, seven, even 800 bucks a month. And you don't need perfect credit or money out of your pocket to do this. In fact, if I can't save you money, I won't waste your time. Get yourself a quick quote right now at savewithconrad.com. I know what you're thinking. Oh, I've looked at this before. It doesn't make sense for me. I don't qualify. Why wouldn't you do this? It's your single biggest bill. It's worth another look. Even credit scores in the 500s can be approved and we're licensed in more than 40 states. But if you've got credit card debt, if you've got a second mortgage... If you don't have six months of your personal bills set aside, you need some help. We've all learned recently that we need a backup plan. We need a rainy day fund. And if you're caught without one, these can be very stressful times. Get ahead, pull out enough cash to make sure you've got three to six months of your bills just set aside, skip your next two months, get rid of your credit card debt, lower your monthly payments by five, six, seven, even 800 bucks a month. And most importantly, get out of debt faster. Pay your house off in half the time with roughly the same monthly payment at savewithconrad.com. NMLS number 65084, Equal Housing Lender. And yeah, you heard me. If you're in a 30-year loan, I want to help you restructure your debt to where you keep roughly the same monthly payments. You don't have to change your lifestyle at all, but you pay your house off much, much faster. Keep more of your own money. Find out how much money you can save for free at savewithconrad.com. Well, let's talk about something that's uh, interesting that I'll be honest. I kind of forgot about, and I enjoy doing some of the, 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 the formatting of these shows and going back and saying, okay, do we talk about that? Do we leave that in? Is that important to the story? And this is something that I forgot even happened. Meltzer would write consequences. Creed real name. Austin Watson 23 was released this past week. He may have been the youngest male wrestler in the promotion. He started working the Indies while in college and graduated with two degrees. From Furman University in 08 while working with TNA. He got a break at the 07 Bound for Glory where Ron Killings and Pac-Man Jones were to defend their tag team title. But the Tennessee Titans wouldn't allow Jones to do much of anything in the ring. TNA heavily promoted Jones in Atlanta where he grew up. Creed was the replacement and impressed most getting himself a contract. He started in early 08 and was a tag team partner of Jay Lethal as lethal consequences. Lethal was being broken out as a single and Creed... Uh, hadn't been by the new regime. So, of course, we know Consequences Creed is going to go on to become Xavier Woods, one of the big stars in the New Day outfit who have just made Mega Bank for WWE. But this was 10 years ago. What happened with Consequences Creed and, and why did the powers that be, so to say, not see money in him? I have no idea. You know, I wasn't,
1: again, I think one of the um, false, false. narratives false narratives. Yeah. Bullshit. Um, is that when I came in or Hogan and I came in that we had the power of the pen. Not true. We didn't hire, we didn't fire. There was nothing in my contract. In fact, my contract specifically pointed out that I had no role in day to day operations, either in the office or outside of the office. Now I had an opinion and in 2010, um, my opinion was confined to all things related to Hulk Hogan storylines um, and nothing outside of that. Um, but I, in terms of hiring and firing, I had nothing to do with that. And I can't begin to tell you what the thought process of letting him go was because I wasn't involved in it. I didn't even hear about it.
0: Well, he is a 33 year old multi 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 millionaire now. So it all worked out
1: and he's and actually a super guy, a super guy super got to, know him, got to know him a little bit in wwe in my last run but uh, I did, uh he, he was gone really before i got a chance to know him in tna
0: i know very recently uh kofi kingston has got the big singles breakout push of the group and lord knows i understand when when it's a cash cow like new day who for a long long time were the top merch sellers and i'm sure they're still moving product in a major major way i mean my wife who doesn't even like wrestling her ringtone is the new day theme song like She just thinks they're fucking hilarious and she didn't even like wrestling. So I understand why that would be a difficult group to sort of break up. But one day you got to think there are going to be phenomenal runs uh, as singles competitors for both Big E and Xavier Woods when the time is right. Or at least that's my belief.
1: Yep. No, I, I I agree. A lot of talent there.
0: Let's talk about, uh, something that maybe we should have all paid a little more attention to. We just passed the 10 year anniversary of losing Chris Canyon. You worked with Chris, uh, very briefly, I think in the WWE, but you spent a lot of time with him in WCW and he was, uh, one of the guys you could count on for sort of outside projects. You know, he, he cut his teeth as, as Mortis and and became a real fan favorite amongst hardcore fans for his innovation in the ring. I mean, he had some spectacular moves that people had never seen before. His creativity was sort of off the charts But when these sort of Hollywood type projects would come along, he was someone that you guys could count on to, uh, sort of be the steady hand and and the glue to hold it together where maybe pro wrestling and quote unquote Hollywood met. And I don't know that, that we as a wrestling community have, have maybe honored his legacy enough because he was a tormented individual and, and passed away way, way too young on April 10th, 2010 do you have any fun or interesting or, or memorable stories or a little anecdote you'd like to share with us about Canyon?
2: Yeah,
1: you know nothing th- that stands out because again, I didn't hang with you know wrestlers for the most part. Other than you know Diamond Dallas Page, who was my neighbor, and obviously Hulk uh, to a degree, but for the most part, I, I didn't have a chance to socialize outside of the business with a lot of people. Now, Chris was a little different; he was from Atlanta. He was, you know, kind of within the little social circle of DDP, which means he was at his house often, which means that occasionally, you know, we would cross paths on a weekend and things like that. I always, you know, Chris was always positive. You, you could you could never challenge Chris with an idea or a, a problem that he couldn't attack from a very positive point of view and find at least a couple solutions for. He may not, you know, buy into the solutions but he'd always attack any situation with a, uh, the most positive attitude of almost anybody that I worked with. He always was smiling. He would be v- very seldom would he get frustrated even with himself, which a lot of talent did at that time. He he was a guy that looked at the, the the glass half full all of the time. And he had a great sense of humor and he was one of the most creative people in terms of, you know, coming up with innovation inside of the ropes of anybody that I've ever met. You know, he he, he was a great worker. He, was a, he, he, he could go out there and have great matches and did. Um, I don't think anybody could top him in terms of creativity and ways of presenting new and unusual moves within the ring that people, you know, either they had never seen it before. At least they didn't feel like they did. Um, you know, but he lacked... You know, what Chris did lack was mic ability. You know, you couldn't really give Chris a, a microphone and get a Chris Jericho-level promo or, a, you know, a Sting-level promo or Ric Flair-level promo or Kurt Angle. Or, you know, there, he didn't have that. But the other thing that made Chris special to me and valuable to me and, and WCW at the time, and you touched on it, was Chris could take somebody who knew nothing about how to perform a wrestling move or how to, you know, have a match in the ring and communicate and teach in such an effective way that you could get good matches out of people that you otherwise wouldn't expect to. Um, Chris was unbelievable. There's a saying, I I don't remember exactly how it goes. Those who can do and those who can't do teach. Well, Chris was uh, an exception to that. Chris was a guy that could not only do, but he could teach and that's a rare, that's a rare commodity. There are certain people that fall into that category that, you know, that make, I think, some of the best producers slash agents. You know, it's one thing to be able to go, have gone out there and done it as a performer. But if you don't have the ability to teach it and inspire and nurture it out of others, um, you're just a former talent. But if you are a, a great producer, Arn Anderson, I think f- probably falls into that category. Arn, you know, I never worked with Arn directly as a producer in WWE, but I did work with him in WCW, even in more or less of an unofficial role as a producer. I would see Arn walking, teaching, explaining psychology to to younger, less experienced talent in a way that was heads and shoulders above everybody else as a producer slash agent. Jeff Jarrett. You know I, I often you know whenever Jeff's name comes up when as it relates to him being a talent, I have one opinion as in terms of him as an agent slash producer, I have an entirely different right. opinion. I think Jeff is probably underrated as a producer. I don't think he's reached his potential as a producer. and it, it he'll get better every single day. And he'll get more comfortable every single day. People will start listening to him in a different way every single day. And I think, you know, Jeff Jarrett could go down as one of the better producers uh, in WWE at some point if he's not already. But, you know, what makes Jeff different is that Jeff could not only do – I think Jeff's a better teacher than he is a performer. He's a great performer. He was a great performer. Don't get me wrong. Nobody could tell us – I think Jeff Jarrett was in a a class – You know that not many people get into when it comes to psychology and telling a story in the ring He's old school. He learned the old school way. He's very much driven by storytelling and psychology And he communicates that very well to younger talent Um, But as great as he was as a performer and telling a story in the ring not as a character mind you That's my opinion, but as a performer. He was amazing um physically um, uh, but as a teacher, I think he's heads, heads and shoulders above where he was as a performer. If that makes sense. It's a it lot does. of words.
0: No, no, no. We get it. I mean, I, I feel the same way. I, I referred to Jeff jokingly on, uh, what happened when, uh, uh, uh by saying, oh, look, here comes the, the human fast forward button himself. Uh, but then you actually work. I worked with him a lot at Starcast One, and dude, he's fantastic. I mean, he he's he really, the best. Yeah. He he's really the understands the business and gets it and. In a way that you don't have to, there's just a lot of understood stuff that, you know, we would just look at each other. We both knew like, okay, we know what to do. And and that is invaluable. I mean, he knows way more about wrestling and production and stuff like that than I do, but there would just be little moments where you could see like, oh, this fucking guy's like another level. He's, he's operating at a mastery level. Let's talk about somebody else who uh, has often referred to himself as a master Uh, Meltzer would write, uh, Vince Russo says he's going to take a break from writing, but will stay with the company and move to Nashville as noted last week. He'll give some input, but doesn't want to be head writer. Uh, This was his doing as he's been citing burnout for a few weeks. I know that you haven't always had the uh, best relationship with Vince Russo. What do you remember about him wanting to take a break here?
1: Same old, same old, same old. How many times in Vince Russo's cup of coffee on the wrestling planet has he burned out Gone home, taken his ball, quit, had a fucking breakdown. I mean, he is the most fragile individual I've ever worked with in the industry. If you look at him wrong, he gets burnt out. And this was no different. You know, and here's what happened. I mean, look, the the, the tension was fairly high prior to Hogan and Bischoff arriving. Listen to me talk about ourselves in the third person. It's fucking cool. Um, there was obviously a lot of tension. The issue... Uh, there was an open open issue between Russo, Hogan, and I, uh, given what went down uh, at, at Bash at the Beach and when Russo decided to uh, go rogue and go into business for himself and all and the lawsuit didn't suit and all that. That was still – that was open-ended, you know, when we came in. And, and Dixie said, hey, you know. Vince has changed. He's found God. He's a different person. He's so much more mature, blah, blah, fucking blah. Um, and, and, and me being me, I said, okay, great. I don't have to like him. I do have to trust him. Otherwise, I won't work with him. I can't work with people I don't trust. I can work with people I don't like. I have no issue with that. Happens every day for all of us. We all work with people we don't necessarily want to go out and have a beer with. That's okay. You don't have to like everybody you work with. It's not a prerequisite of mine. But I do have to trust the people I work with. Because if I have to look over my shoulder, I'm spending energy that I should be spending somewhere else. And I don't want to do it. And I just don't like being around people I don't trust. I never have. Um, I'm, that's a one real quirk that I. it seems to be getting more prominent <laughs> in my personality as time goes on. Um, but even back then, I was like, fuck, if I can't trust them, I'm not working with them. And we met and it was kind of like similar to when I first met Russo back in whenever it was, 2000, when Brad Siegel wanted me to you know, meet with him to see if I could work with him. And Vince, as we've said, and anybody that knows Russo knows, he can be very charming and disarming. He can make you put your guard down. He's really fucking good at that. That's the only thing he's good at. But he's really good at that. And it was like, okay, let's let bygones be bygones, water under the bridge. There's money to be made. There's a future in front of us. Let's work together and try to make it work. Well, you know, the minute Vince Russo isn't like king of the little fucking sandbox that he lives in, he gets his feelings hurt. It's hard for him to be creative. I just don't feel it anymore. I'm getting burned out. I need to go home. That's Vince Russo in a nutshell happens over and over and over again the minute you challenge him the minute he's challenged in any way he crumbles like a fucking dried out oreo cookie he just crumbles and that's what happened here he wasn't going to move to nashville that was just his way of trying to get more money out of TNA. he had no intentions of moving to nashville it's bullshit
0: well let's talk about the show here we are Right, we're over an hour into this. Let's talk about lockdown. Um, chat me up. You've talked a lot about it. you hate gimmick matches. Now we've got a whole fucking pay-per-view with cage matches.
1: Boy, if you think I pissed people off when I decided to shit all over the six sided ring, you should have heard my diatribe about cage matches from top to bottom on a pay-per-view. And honest to God, I could have, uh, I could have proposed just about any bizarro act you can think of within TNA. And it would have been far better received than me suggesting that we don't do cage matches from top to bottom. My God, it was blasphemy for me to suggest, Hey, why are we having cage matches on the entire fucking show? I didn't say fuck it. I was trying to be politically correct. Why would we possibly consider Having cage matches on the entire card when there's no reason for a cage match, there's no story, there's no angle, there's no fucking nothing other than well, nobody else is doing it, and that's what we do. Jesus Christ, I felt like Vince McMahon. I was, he was going, God damn, this is wrestling. You people are silly, this is stupid. And it was, I hated it. I hated it. I pounded my fists trying to convince people to not do it. Now, I love the idea of a cage match in the main event, something that you're creating anticipation for, that you've spent weeks building a story that leads to the only way you could possibly end this storyline is within the steel cage. I'm all in. Give me that. I'll be the first one. I'll be at the front of the line trying to come up with ideas to make that work. But just to have cage matches for the sake of cage matches, kind of like having a six-sided ring for the sake of a six-sided ring, is fucking stupid. I hated it. I still hate it. Even going back and watching this show and realizing that half the matches on this card didn't even use the cage, they just had a match. Yeah, they take a little bump off the the supposed you know sh- you know sh- dreaded cyclone fence, which is silly. Um, and they'd use it for a spot or two, but for the most part, it had no purpose. It was just there. Why not fucking dangle a watermelon from the ceiling? Why not? Nobody else is doing that. Let's, let's do that. That's kind of the psychology behind it. So yeah, I hated it, but they wouldn't, I, They would, that's the one thing they, they were, they were, they were really dead set, you know, to have, and there was one or two people in particular that were just dead set on making sure that they had a cage match from top to bottom, because that's what we do here at TNA. Oh my God.
0: We start the show with uh, sort of a weird thing. Taz says, uh, Hey, uh, we have a call time here, uh, at TNA and you're supposed to be here at 1 PM. So if you're on the show or one of the performers or part of the production, then you have to be here at 1 PM and six did not show up in typical 6 pack fashion. So we don't know where he is, but he's not here. And it sort of feels like a burial and an announcement that he's done with the company. But then we find out after the fact that apparently there was a licensing issue for him with the state of Missouri. And the next day Taz is informed that. No, uh, he told Dixie Carter ahead of time and she approved that he would be missing the show and he's at TV two days later. What do you remember about Waltman not being on this show and then Taz sort of delivering this weird speech at the top if if he's really sticking around? I, I, I don't remember any of the
1: backstage details. Uh, it It sounds plausible the way you laid it out to me in terms of, you know, because Sean was, look, Sean was always good at communicating information, you know, he, he, not necessarily, you know, the greatest order in the world. Um, he never claimed to be. But I certainly believe that if he had a hard time getting – first of all, if he had a hard time getting a license, somebody within TNA should have been aware of that. Um, it shouldn't have been up to Sean to communicate that, that problem to Dixie Carter or anybody else in TNA, that should have been done. The agents should have been right on the front line of that. So if there's any responsibility for miscommunication, it would fall on whoever was agenting that match um, and not communicating, which was a big, big challenge. Agents were, that was a big challenge at this point. Um, But that's another topic for another day. But that's all I remember about it. And it's, you know, typical bad communication. You know, happens in every business, but happened pretty consistently in today And unfortunately, when all of your business is on television, um, you know, the whole world knows about it.
0: They also announced that, uh, Eric Bischoff is not here, but they're doing this, of course, to build for the angle at the end of the show. And, uh, prior to this, there's been a, a ton of work in making you a, a vile heel. Uh, let's talk about the first match here. It's Rob Van Dam and James storm. They get six minutes and 33 seconds. Van Dam gets the win after a spin kick and then a frog splash and uh, the match is to determine whether Team Hogan or Team Flair is going to get the uh, the man advantage or advantage in the main event. Uh, this is sort of just here for me. I mean, it's a cage match and the first match on the card comes off a little weird. Uh, obviously, these are two talented and very capable performers. I've always been a low-key James Storm fan and a Rob Van Dam fan from back in the ECW days, but I don't know. I didn't love this one, but Meltzer didn't hate it. he gave it three stars. You saw it this time for the first time, probably since it happened 10 years ago. what did you think?
1: Uh, you know, I thought it was pretty good. One of the interesting things I noticed, you know, as I got to work with James Storm, you know, for the next few years in TNA, you know, starting here in 2010, you know, one of the, and this, I, you know, I guess I don't mean this to be a criticism, but I'm sure he's going to take it that way. And James let me apologize right off the bat. Cause I'm about to bury you. Um, one of the running, you know, James is a great performer. James could have been a great, and he's, and he's a great character. You know, he there's a lot of things to like about James Storm as a performer. But one of the flaws in his game was that, and this became a running joke after a while if you want to know who's going to win or lose in a match, all you need to do is watch James Storm's entrance. But when. He, when, when yeah you know, seriously you could you could know nothing about wrestling really and you could look at james storm and you could tell by the way he made his way to the ring whether he was going to do the job or not he was all boo-boo fate whenever james storm would make an entrance and he was going to lose he looked like somebody just set his puppy on fire you know when he was going to go over he was all fired up you know and that's the first thing i noticed here only because of, of that kind of running joke about james storm um there's a lot of stuff I liked about it. Um you know, obviously Rob, I think Rob was, you know, physically still in his prime at this point. His kicks look good. A lot of the spinning stuff looked good. The frog splash obviously looked good. My favorite part of the match was when Rob goes up and and he's getting ready to go to the frog splash and Tess says, "No one ever gets as high as RVD." Now, I don't know if if Taz meant that to be as funny as it was or whether it just came out, but I got a big fucking kick out of it.
0: Great line. Taz is an underrated commentator. Uh, next up we got Hulk Hogan doing a promo and he's saying uh, if team Flair wins the main event, then he's going to leave TNA. Uh, it's kind of interesting that this step is announced here, but they don't announce it on TV either way. That's the step. If, if team flair wins, Hogan's leaving. Cause there's no reason for him to stay next up. We get an next division escape the rules cage match. So sort of the WWF version of a cage match where the first one of the floor wins, man, there's so much talent in here. Chris Sabins here. Alex Shelley's here. Brian Kendrick's here. And one of my guilty pleasures from way back in the day, homicide, I was such a big homicide fan. I thought he had such a cool presence. I first saw him on the Indies, uh, probably ring of honor. I would guess maybe Oh two or three. And just thought his stuff was tremendous. W- a lot of talent here. Uh, we know that Alex Shelley and Chris Sabin are going to become big players here at different points in their TNA run. And Brian Kendrick has always been, I don't know, a lot more like a modern day Brian Pillman, where he's going to have great matches everywhere he goes. But I don't know, for whatever reason, never really gets to the top of the card. What do you think watching this one back? I don't think they maybe got enough time. Homicide wins, four minutes, 59 seconds. Meltzer gave it a star in three quarters.
1: Ah, I don't get that. Um, I, I Let me start off by saying on my scale of one to ten, uh, and, and I don't think I've ever given in my mind a ten, or even a nine is hard to achieve. So, you know, I kind of top out at eights for the most part. Um, I give this one a 6.5. on on the Bischoff scale of one to 10. Pretty good. Uh, I, and and I would have given it, you know, a 7.5 or an eight had there been a little psychology, just a little. And there wasn't, it was a spot fest. However, it was one of the more entertaining matches of its type. It was designed to be a spot fest. This was not designed to be, you know, Shakespeare. You know, this wasn't the star Wars trilogy. This is, this was designed to be exactly what it was in the exhibition, which was more or less a spot fest. I don't, and I God, I hate to call it a spot fest because that's a kind of a derisive way of framing something. And I don't mean to do that because I thoroughly enjoyed it for what it was not necessarily my favorite presentation of the product because listeners probably know by now I'm more story driven than I am athletic driven. But, um, for those who prefer a very physical, high-flying, fast-paced match, I don't think you could find one better. If this match were to happen in a WWE ring today, even on a WrestleMania, had there, you know, if there was sufficient buildup for it, I think it would be one of the better matches on the card. These guys put on a hell of a match. Didn't have the story, didn't have the psychology, but in terms of a physical, fast-paced match, match with great athletes who were in great shape and who executed everything almost flawlessly. I thought it was pretty awesome.
0: Really good stuff. Go out of your way to watch this. If you're not familiar with TNA, um, this is, this is good stuff. Next up, Kevin Nash. That's right. Kevin Nash is on this card and is going to be taking on Eric young, who I often felt was uh, maybe one of the uh, secret sauces of TNA. I mean, such a talented performer. I wish we would have seen him have a bigger run in the WWE. He's still there. I guess there's still chance. There's still time. Uh, Kevin Nash gets the win. Of course, four minutes, 47 seconds star in three quarters after the match. Nash does a promo saying, Hey, if you think I'm going to let Scott Hall come out here by himself later, by the way, that's a reference to the fact that Scott Hall's tag team partner, Sean Waltman had no showed the event. So they're supposed to be taking on team 3d, the former Dudley boys. Nash announces, if you think I'm going to let Scott, Scott hall come out here by himself later, you're mistaken. I'm his partner. I like the promo after it sets up the future match, you know, a little later here in the card star in a quarter. It's, it's cool for what it is. I, uh, I don't think it's probably either one of their best matches or the best use of either guy, but I like both performers. So maybe I'm a little more lenient. What'd you think?
1: Uh I no, I'm with you on that. I didn't I didn't love it, I didn't hate it. I just acknowledged it watching it. It was there. It was filling space. It was it, you know, it, it was what it was. You know, I don't think Eric Young had a chance to shine and Eric's a you know, you bring up Eric Young. Um what a what an interesting guy. Um I think he's so talented in so many ways. His promos are awesome um, when given the right opportunity Eric is falls into that same category that in my mind uh, Kurt Angle you know he's the king of the neighborhood Dolph Ziggler you know lives right next door I think uh, Eric Young probably's got a house across the street um, these are guys who can be legitimate and be serious you know, in Kurt's case, obviously, he was at a different level than everybody else. But, and, 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 and Dolph's right there, too, but Kurt more, more so. But when you have a character that can be comedic, funny, off-the-wall fucking entertaining, irreverent, come up with shit off the top of their head, improv in almost any situation, uh, and be hysterical doing it, you've just described Eric Young. And that's a lot of talent. That takes a tremendous amount of talent. Um, but yet, if you need that character to shift gears and become a very serious, credible guy who's passionate and who could drive a story that's a believable, credible story, Eric has the ability to do that. But there's something missing. And I, I for one, I can't put my finger on it. Um, it. He's he's never quite broken through either in TNA uh, or in WWE where he currently resides. He's never been able to break through despite the fact – that I think he's got this amazing talent. It's there. It's just never been nurtured properly. I guess at the right time. Maybe that's it. Maybe it's timing. And maybe maybe Eric Young's time has kind of come and gone. I don't know. But man, what a what an amazing talent Eric is, and so versatile. And I think one of the potentially one of the funniest guys out there.
0: Let's keep it going here. Let's talk about the next match. Uh, Velvet Sky and Madison Rain retain the Knockouts tag title, uh, and Rain wins the Knockout singles title with a win over Angelina Love and Tara, four minutes and 51 seconds. The steps here are if Tara and Love win, they win the tag title. If Sky and Rain win, whoever gets the pin becomes the Knockout champion. Meltzer would call it a bad match, gave a half a star. I can't say I disagree. This would just felt out of place here.
1: I didn't have enough caffeine in me to get through this match this morning. I really didn't. I, 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 and, and part of it is because of the setup. The setup took me out of the match. Very rarely does a setup, you know, the vignettes, the interviews, the stuff that they, you know, show you before the match, before the bell actually rings, very seldom does a setup take me out of the moment. Um, sometimes it doesn't suffice to put me into a moment, but very rarely will it take me out of one the setup here with the fucking game show presentation and the shit in the box and a title in the box and a fucking scorpion in a box and Jeremy Borash out there, you know, like a game show host. I just, and then the explanation of the steps on this thing, I just went, fuck it. I skipped right through it. So I didn't even watch it. Sorry.
0: I couldn't. No, I get it. Let's, uh, let's talk about the next match. We've got a vacant X title. We've got a three-way dance here. Kazarian, Shannon Moore, and Homicide. They get nine minutes and nine seconds. All kinds of spectacular stuff here on this one. Uh, I really enjoyed this. Uh, three and a half stars is what Meltzer gave it. He even called it really good. What would you think?
1: I, I agree. Uh, I, I loved it. I loved it. And, and it made me realize so much. And I never got to know Homicide. I, don't, I just didn't. Um, Shannon Moore is... You know he, he's a friend of the families i have known him since he started in WCW we still have a good relationship with Shannon uh, and I want to shout out to Shannon she you know and I may have done this on the show before but I, th- I think it's worth repeating there's a lot of not there are talents who, who fall victim to a lot of the um, extracurricular things that can happen when you live on the road whether you're a in a rock band or a country music band or you're a touring performer of any kind, when you spend as much time as some of these guys have on the road and you're constantly surrounded by a lot of shit that can sidetrack you or in some cases worse, um, it's easy to fall into. It really is, especially if you're young, like Shannon was when he broke into business. And he, he had his, he, he like Scott Hall, he had, his, he had his issues with chemicals and drugs and a lot of other things. And Shannon uh, turned his life around in a big way. Um, He's now helping other people uh, get out of their situations and deal with their addictions and that type of thing. And I have nothing but the utmost respect for Shannon to this day. That being said, uh, back here in 2010, you know, and even prior in WCW, Shannon was an amazing performer, just an amazing performer. Never really reached his full potential, which is unfortunate, but uh, loved working with him and love him to this day. But it was fun to go back and watch him when he was, you know, I don't want to say at the top of his game, but probably close to it. Homicide, you know, w- we both agree, you know, great performer, great character. Kazarian, uh, Frankie Kazarian, Chris were, I've got a couple highlights about being in TNA. One is working with my son, Garrett. And and watching Garrett break into the business and get to work with AJ Styles and Rick Rude and Hulk Hogan and Ric Flair and uh, Kurt Angle and so many of the other big names in the business. It was a privilege that Garrett really was grateful for at the time and still is to this day. It was a privilege for me to be able to provide that opportunity to my son because it was something that was important to him. So uh, that to me is the highlight of my TNA career. Second to that is getting to know Chris Daniels and Frankie Kazarian. Um, One, because they're great guys. Two, because they're great professionals and extremely talented, open-minded. And I have to tell you, you know, in in 2010, I was still trying to manage myself by not having too big a hand in anything. It wasn't my intent. I didn't want to take over creative. I didn't want to roll in the office. Honestly, I... I wanted to show up, do TV, get home, and and produce television shows for Bischoff-Hervey Entertainment because I was making, eh, we were seven figures each when we were running hot. And I was way more interested in that than I was in spending more time in TNA. Selfish as that may sound, that was my deal going in. I made that clear to TNA when I signed. So it wasn't like they were expecting me to – you know, be a hundred percent for TNA. Um, and that wasn't the case. I said, look, I said, this is, this is what I really do for a living. This is what I'm willing to do here. And my role in TNA and T- at the time in 2010 was really just to come in and oversee Hulk Hogan stuff. Yes, I would be a character on TV if that helped. But I didn't want any response. I didn't want to run their fucking business. I didn't want to have an opinion about their business. I didn't want to hear about their business. In fact, one of the things I'm going to get sidetracked here for a second. One of the things that kind of set the tone in a you know negative way for me at TNA was, uh, and, and Dixie Carter to her credit, she's she's a very engaging person. You know, she wanted. She wanted me to be more of a part of things, I think, than than I wanted to at a certain point. Or at least she pretended she did. Let's put it that way. But there was one point I'll never forget when, you know, there was Janice Carter. You know, it's like the Wizard of Oz. You know, Janice Carter wants to have a conference call with everybody. And they included me on the conference call. And I, you know, to discuss business or or licensing or whatever the fuck it was. I don't remember what the subject matter was. But they scheduled for me for this conference call. I had a bunch of other stuff to do that I was already booked for, for for my real business at that time. I said, sorry, I'm not going to be there. If I have time, I'll do it. If not, not. And I guess that just shocked everybody that I would not make room in my schedule for this very important meeting with Janice Carter. Well, my perspective was, look, there's nothing in my contract that says I have to participate in this kind of shit. I don't want to, number one. Number two, I don't have the time for it. Because I have other obligations that are, have a precedent. And number three, uh, I'm not interested in it. I don't want to be a part of that business. I, I'm going to show up, I'm going to do what I'm going to do, and I'm going to go home and make a lot more money. Um, that was the tone that I that, that tone. That was the position that I had in my mind at this point. But there were certain guys that I was getting to know quickly. Frankie Kazarian Christianials were two of them. They were open-minded. They had ideas of their own. They would come to me. I'd show up at TV. They would come to me three or four times a day. What if we do this? What if we do that? And, and then I find myself, when I get around people like that, now all of a sudden, there's a, I, I shift into a different gear. When people are that um, energetic and entrepreneurial about their own characters and ideas – um, it, it it creates the same feeling in me. So I'll really, almost right off the bat, Frankie and Chris were two guys that we could riff with. When I first got there, I think Chris Daniels looked at me like, oh, fuck, who's this guy? Oh, I heard about him. Oh, he's that bishop guy from WCW. Oh, fuck. Probably within about two weeks, we were spending more time talking about characters and ideas and storylines than, than I was with anybody else. And Kazarian, same way. And then towards the end, I would just, Those guys were so good at improving. You know, we knew where the story was going. We knew what we needed. They'd come to me and say, hey, what if we do this and this and this? And they'd run it by me really quick, and I'd be like, they're fucking awesome. Go for it. had a great relationship with those guys, and I miss them both. And I'm really happy for their continued success in AEW, by the way. Hopefully, everybody's out there supporting
0: them. Hard to imagine being able to run across two nicer, better guys.
1: Oh my God. Are you kidding? If you can't get along with Chris Daniels and Frankie Kazarian, you need professional help.
0: I think Frankie Kazarian is low key. One of the nicest guys in the history of professional wrestling. Like, I don't know how he's made it. I mean, he clearly has to love wrestling. I mean, I get that, that he does, but I don't know how you make it this long being that nice of a guy. He's almost Charles Robinson level of just super friendly to everyone he meets. And he's because
1: he's got the talent to back it up. He doesn't have to rely on his personality. He's got the talent to back it up. He can deliver when he's called upon.
0: Next up, we get what was once a ton of time, probably a dream match. The Outsiders, who, man, were riding high back in 96, 97. And so were the Dudley boys in ECW. Well, now it's Team 3D versus Kevin Nash and Scott Hall, six minutes and 49 seconds. It's a uh, changed at the last minute to a St. Louis street fight with false counting anywhere. I know what you're thinking. Isn't this match inside of a cage? Yep. Uh, as soon as we get started here, Bubba comes out and does a promo and tells the ref leave the door open and we're going to make it a false count anywhere match. And man, the fans go nuts for that. They're ready for it. And I guess they sort of have to do that because after they do that, why up, to the nuts gimmick? Uh, he pushes Bob Ray or, or Devon and says, "Devon, get the tables." But you forget. Wait a minute, we're in a cage. How's that going to happen? Oh yeah, the door's open. So here comes the table. Um, you can probably imagine what's coming here. Team 3D gets the win. They use uh, the 3D on Scott Hall and allow him to uh, to get the pin. Three stars what do you think? I mean, this is probably not the, uh, the dream match that maybe fans wanted once upon a time between two really iconic tag teams, but it was still cool to see. I mean, this is hitting your nostalgia in all the right places, right?
1: Yeah. You know, you're going to get a reaction. I mean, it did get a great reaction. You got, you know, four amazing talents in the ring. They were brands in and of themselves. Um, I think one of the reasons that the crowd popped as much as they did to have a match like this that's supposed to be inside of a steel cage is they we got sick of watching shit inside of a steel cage. It didn't matter. Right. They didn't say that to themselves, but you know that that's you know the art of producing television. I guess is to to know when you know to 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 do something and when not to do something, and they got so tired of watching matches in cages that didn't really need the cage that. Now we're doing something different and they pop for different as well as the talent themselves. So, uh, it, you know, it was what it was. I think it, it certainly wasn't the dream match. It might've been, you know, five years earlier, but, or you know, 15 years earlier, but it was still a great match. It got a great reaction. Let's put it, there. well, I won't say it was a great match. It got a great reaction. Therefore, in my mind, it was a great match because that's all, as a producer, all I cared about is the reaction to the crowd. The crowd reacted if they popped, if they were happy, if they were excited, if they felt like they got their money's worth, I'm a happy guy, regardless of whether it got five stars or two stars.
0: Next up, we get a genuinely great match. It's the best match on the show. And man, it ain't even close, at least in my opinion, uh, Mr. Anderson and Kurt angle, and they get a ton of time here, 20 minutes and 54 seconds, the rules here are the only way you could win was to leave through the cage door. And Anderson has the keys to the cage since he won the ladder match on Impact. As we said, ton of time, twenty minutes, fifty-four seconds. They pull out all the stops. There's blood here. Kurt Angle looks about as good as as he's ever looked. And I don't think a lot of people thought that Kurt had this level of performance in him, sort of post WWE. Uh, and they thought maybe they just wrung out all the juice that he had left. But he has had consistently great matches in Impact since he started. And he jumped right into the frying pan with a feud with Samoa Joe. And this is great stuff. You know, the former Mr. Kennedy, Ken Kennedy here, uh, who maybe didn't have the best exit from his WWE run. And we recently covered his career on grill and Jr. a little cheap plug there about what could have been. And it was one of our most well-received, uh, podcasts that we've done. And I think that probably surprised Jim Ross more than, than maybe some of the other shows have. But fans really like Mr. Anderson and they like this character and they appreciate his work and swagger and and demeanor and Kurt angle was just hitting on all cylinders here. This gets four and a half stars, tremendously well done and an incredible spot off the top, a, an unbelievable spectacle with a moonsault from the top of the cage for Kurt angle. When you know, he's beat up and he's hurting and he, he shouldn't be doing this, but he does. And, uh, scarily lands on Mr. Anderson. And after he gets the big win, he announces that he's going to take some time off and regroup. But when he comes back, he's coming back for the world title. Meltzer would note that he's actually opening a health food cafe in Pittsburgh this coming week called Kurt angles foodies cafe. And he wanted to take some time off to heal up and just focus on his new venture for a little bit. And he's earned it. And this match was Seriously, the best thing on the show. Would you agree?
1: Absolutely. And if you're if you're so inclined to get the TNA app, and I encourage you to do it. Um, one hour forty five minutes forty eight seconds is the time code that I had as I was watching it. When you get this amazing shot, and by the way, you know I didn't talk about the open of the show at all, but I did make a few notes. Um, David Sahati, oh. who had pre- previously worked uh, in WWE and was working in TNA uh, putting together the special packages in the opens. And he worked along with Kevin Sullivan and others, so it wasn't just David. But David was a very, very creative guy. And there's a lot of things I didn't like about the open. There were many things I did like about it, not necessary to break it down at this point. But the, the common denominator is David Sahadi. D- David was the director for the show. And it, this is one of those beats here at one hour... 45 minutes and 48 seconds in this show. I remember exactly where I was standing. You know, you've been doing this podcast with me now for a couple of years and my memory, you know, details going back five, 10, 15, 20 years, 25 years, eh, 50, 50 at best. A lot of things that I probably should remember. I just don't because it all runs together in my mind, but this is an exception. I remember exactly where I was standing and 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 where the monitor was while i was watching this and it time stood still for me just like it you know i remember where i was when i watched the first you know man you know step foot on the moon i remember that night like it was yesterday there's certain things in my life that i really remember exactly where i was and what i was doing at that precise moment and at one hour forty-five minutes and forty-eight seconds, I can remember exactly where I was and what I was doing, and it was amazing, amazing. And the replay was even better because they got a better replay than they had a live shot. It was just fucking awesome, 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 awesome. And you know, Ken Anderson, Ken Anderson was another guy that I I brought into uh, TNA because of the experience I had. I didn't know Ken Anderson before we went to Australia together. I knew who he was, but I didn't know him. We went to Australia, had a great time together. We clicked personally, um, had, had, you know, a very, very good time in, in Australia together. And I knew when we got back and the TNA thing was happening that th- that was a guy I wanted to bring into TNA because he had a great, I mean, he was a great Mike guy. He had the potential of being one of the best of all times. Um, and he could deliver in the ring. He didn't have the typical wrestler, you know, super physique. But he didn't need it. His work was outstanding. He was credible. He was big enough, strong enough, fast enough, enough of an athlete to be credible. But, man, he had the mic skills to go with it. And the timing and the psychology and all the other kind of less obvious requirements. But uh, what a hell of a match. Hell of a match.
0: Go out of your way to see it. We should also mention there's kind of a cool moment here where uh, Meltzer would write, he, talking about Anderson, goes for the mic check but angle blocked. And hit six straight German suplexes. The spot was awesome because angle didn't do them one after the other, like Chris Benoit, but he took his time and made each one mean something. The crowd was going crazy at that point. I mean, people just, I, I again, we said it at the top of the show. I think a lot of people are, Oh, LOL TNA, and but man, there's some good shit in here. And this is one of them.
1: Uh, now, there's, some, there, there's some shit in this show. I didn't say shit. There is some matches and action and characters in this show that would would rise heads and shoulders above some of the talent and some of the action that we're seeing today in any company. Let's just, I'll just leave it right there. People can agree or disagree, but I'm i am talking about, you know, the Motor City, you know, machine guns and homicide. And there's a lot of talent here that would be heads and shoulders above some of the talent, some of the prominent talent that we're seeing today. Um, if, if they were able to (laughs) come back today as they were back in 2010,
0: it's kind of fun to, you know, be reminded of, and don't get me wrong. I'm super excited about AEW. I watch every week. Don't miss an episode. Think the world of those guys, top to bottom. They've been excellent to deal with, but they've, you know, a lot of them are good friends of mine and I'm so excited that they're there. But people talk about AEW like, oh, this is the first time WWE's had any competition. There's been any alternative. And then you go back and you see 10 years ago. Dude, they're on, they're on TV, they've got Ric Flair, they've got Hulk Hogan, but they've also got AJ Styles, and they've also got Kurt Angle, and they've also got Sting, and it's, it's just unbelievable what's here. Let, let's keep going. Let's go to the and
1: next. And, and they were also delivering a million and a half to two billion viewers a week. Yeah. Times are interesting, aren't they? Now you've got companies getting excited about a half a million viewers or 700,000 viewers. It's like, oh, okay, I guess that's important guess that's really changing the world, but you know, as, as much of a LOL, as you put it, as TNA was getting at the time, they were delivering consistently prior to Hogan and I getting there and subsequent, you know, a million to million, four million, five hell, the reaction show that Jason Hervey and I produced at a, that aired at 11 o'clock to 12 o'clock at night, delivered a million viewers that followed impact at midnight. So, you know, b- it's easy to become myopic and forget about facts relative to the past but you know for someone to suggest this is the first time wwe's had competition i'm sorry i'll uh, i'll take exception to that <laughs> <laughs> we've <got laughs> i'll take a big exception to that you know, And again, when, when any wrestling company, I'm not picking on anybody. And I'm like you. I fully support AEW. There's a lot of people there that I, I know personally, behind the scenes and in front of the camera. I'm fully supportive of them. I cheer them on. Nothing negative here. But don't get out over your skis and position yourself as something that you're clearly not yet. You know, AEW is highly competitive, highly competitive. In fact, dominating consistently dominating the WWE development territory because that's what NXT is. Let's be honest and fair. Let's also be honest and fair and recognize that NXT has had a 10 year jump on AEW. NXT has been around for a long time. NXT has the full support and and cross promotional opportunities, you know, of both raw and SmackDown. That's something that AEW doesn't have. Um, but still to suggest that, you know, this is the first time WWE's had competition. I'm sorry. Move over to the side here. I'm going to kick you right in the balls.
0: Well, it's a kick in the balls. This next match because Lord, I love AJ styles and think he's one of the best wrestlers of all time, but man, this whole, he's Ric Flair's protege. And he's out here in his damn dollar general robe. This is not doing him any favors. I this- I disagree. I disagree. Let's chat me up then. Talk to me about it. Why do you disagree?
1: I th- Let me first say, to be clear, so people that, that are listening to this and to, happen to be driving their cars, their heads don't explode on their way to work, provided they're able to go to work. I, I thought this sucked. I thought it was a bad way to use AJ. It wasn't my idea, by the way. am not going to tell you whose idea it was because it doesn't matter, but it wasn't my idea. But okay, it was Hulk Hogan's idea because <laughs> <laughs> I knew that would drive you crazy. I could hear your breathing change,
0: yeah, fuck. Whoa, on my fuck. headset.
1: As I said, I'm not going to tell you who, whose idea it was. I could hear you, <sighs> <sighs> <laughs> 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 you motherfucker. I can't believe you're not going to tell us who it is. Um but the reason i think it was a good thing is is it forced i don't know force is the right word it encouraged against his will cuz AJ didn't want to do it AJ hated it from what i remember hated it um but it forced him to think of himself as a character in a different way one of the things that that Hulk and I both recognize in AJ. We talked about this privately and we never talked about it pr- publicly. Amazing talent, probably had more potential than anybody else on the card, but he had this very myopic view of his own character. Mm-hmm. And it was very rigid. I mean, he was the exact opposite of Frankie Kazarian and Chris Daniels. Here were two guys that were like, open to any ideas it would try to add to it create it make it better execute it to the best I mean they were really creative they were creatively they were entrepreneurs they were always looking for that next big idea that that to me if I had to describe Frankie and Chris in in a short sentence that would be it they were always open to new ideas. AJ on the other hand was the exact opposite of that. He had a very rigid, very myopic view of his character. All of the physical abilities in the frickin' world, at that, especially at that point, still does, but at that point, really did. But his character was so narrowly defined and narrowly targeted that it just didn't work. Now, I'm I'm going to say some things that I'm sure are going to be offensive to some. Don't give a fuck. Um, but you know, TNA had their whole Yeah, but it's homegrown talent. Who the fuck cares about homegrown? Unless you're selling vegetables on a fucking roadside stand in the middle of the summer and you've got like fresh sweet corn and fresh tomatoes and lettuce and cabbage and oh, don't forget carrots because I love fucking fresh carrots. Unless you're selling fresh vegetables, I don't care if they're homegrown or not. I only care that they matter. And that the audience relates to them and they move the scale either in ratings or in revenue or hopefully both. That's all that matters. But it within teeny at the time, it was like being homegrown was somehow some kind of strategic or tactical creative advantage over somebody that can actually deliver an audience. And they weren't able to separate the two homegrown was the most important thing to them. And it was, again, it was, another, it was a six-sided ring thing, right? It didn't really matter. It didn't really make any sense. But if you were in the office and anybody suggested that, you know, an AJ Styles needed to change his character, it's like, oh, my God, he's homegrown. Are you kidding? We can't do that. So there was a lot of resistance to it. But I'll tell you why I think it was a great thing. And I'll, I'll, I'll carry that forward. I've already touched on it. AJ had to develop as a character and as a performer. And as bad as this gimmick was, and it was, and as wrong as it was, and it was, at least he did it. And he began to see himself differently. He may not have liked it, but he had to learn how to pull it off. And it took him out of that myopic, kind of, you know, f- laser focused character that he had been, that he had taken so much pride in. And that's a learning experience. You learn to become a different character. You, you, you. you you teach yourself how to accept the fact that you have to portray something that you're not really that guy. (gasps) You're an actor because now you're portraying something that you're not. And it helped. I think AJ, he, he may disagree with me. Next time he sees me, I'm sure he'll give me an earful, but it forced him to learn how to become a character in a way that he probably wouldn't otherwise have grown. And the same thing is true with that Fakakta what was that chick's name that he was having an affair with? or the, the, in? Oh, my God. It was a horrible storyline, but it was well executed.
0: Cla- uh, Claire
1: Lynch. Claire Lynch. That, uh, I'm sure A.J. hated every fucking minute of that. But guess what? He tried really, really hard. He learned how to be and present a character other than himself. Himself. And that was a learning and growing experience. So as bad as it was from a television point of view, it was great for AJ from a personal growth perspective, in my opinion.
0: He's going to be taking on Pope D'Angelo De Niro here, who I feel like is probably somebody you saw a lot in. Do I have that right? Absolutely. Love Pope. Still do. He's another guy
1: that I stay in pretty close touch with, you know, not, not personally. We don't hang out, but you know, on social media and I reach out to him you know, occasionally. He's a great, he's a great human being. Number one, amazing talent. Another guy that just never that should have, could have, if, if Pope at his peak, Pope's peak sounds like a mountain somewhere, Pope's peak. If, if at Pope's peak, he would have had the opportunity to walk into a WWE environment today or AEW, I, I think he'd be heads and shoulders above 80% of the card.
0: He's tremendous on the mic. Did a great job as a commentator for this company. And, uh, you sort of forget that, man, he used to be one of the tippy top guys here challenging for the TNA title. Uh, I loved, uh, Pope's work here. Um, I just think he's got charisma, you know? just he just oozes charisma he's one of those guys who just has it and he has a tremendous look and this is a great match they get three and three-quarter stars i guess we should mention they tried something with the live crowd that i don't think was all that well thought out flair comes out with aj earl hebner tries to stop him and send him to the back he gets in the classic rick flair shoving the referee spot and flair starts to fire up and they're supposed to be cheering the fact that Hey, we're getting rid of the heel manager, but this is an old school crowd, man. They're chanting instead. We want flair. Uh, But then once he's out of there, they really get cooking on the match. I thought it was a great match. I don't know that AJ in this era or any era for that matter is capable of having a bad one Pope more than handles his own here. And I feel like a lot of people, you know, these days just don't even talk about Pope go out of your way and and watch this one and and recognize how great this dude really was. And this is just 10 years ago. I dug it. What'd you think?
1: I thought it was pretty good. I enjoyed it. You know, obviously both both performers are uh, were are at the top of the games here, and uh, I enjoyed watching it. it. It was great.
0: It's time for our main event: Team Hogan versus Team Flair. Uh it's lockdown twenty ten. Team Hogan is Abyss, Jeff Hardy, Jeff Jarrett, and Rob Van Dam. Team Flair is Desmond Wolf, who we all know is Nigel McGuinness, James Storm, Robert Rood. And Sting, of course, Robert Roode is Bobby Roode. But Sting and Jeff Hardy in a main event, I mean, this this is big-time stuff. They get tons of time here as well, 30 minutes, 13 seconds. It's a different-looking cage than we've seen some other times. We've got a top on this one. And really, there's a dangerous moment where we see Jeff Hardy on top of this, and then, of course, beer money comes up. They've got a platform set up for a table spot on top of a cage. And unbelievably they've modified a ladder to where it has little platforms at the bottoms of the legs of the ladder. Jeff Hardy scales the top of the ladder stands on the tippy top and jumps off the motherfucker. It's just unbelievable. The risk at hand here. Uh, I don't know that anybody should have had that much faith and confidence in, in a, in a, in a wrestling cage, much less one built by TNA, LOL. I hate that I do that too, but still there ain't no chance I would have performers on top of a cage, but here they are all the high risk stuff. But the finish comes with a lot of storytelling uh, outcomes, flair outcomes, Hulk Hogan, big pop for Hulk Hogan. who at this point has a as his protege wearing his WWE hall of fame ring, which is probably a topic for another day. Uh, but he's got a bat and you come out even though you weren't supposed to be here and and negotiate the bat away from Hulk Hogan and drop it and then reach into your pocket and reveal that you have brass knuckles tease. You're going to throw it to Ric Flair instead turn and throw it to Hulk Hogan. He immediately punches Flair in the head Flair blades to Helen back pouring blood takes a couple of big bumps into the cage for Hogan and then turns around and just falls flat into some thumbtacks. It is a bloody scene from Ric Flair, abyss nails, Desmond Wolf with his finishing move, that incredible, uh, power slam or, or, or side slam one, two, three, there it is. Team Hogan wins. What'd you think of the match? What'd you think of the guys on top of the cage? What'd you think about your bit with Flair and Hogan and the blood and thumbtacks? Oh my.
1: Uh, let's start off with the, the spot with Jeff Hardy on top of the cage, setting up the tables and there was a point right before where he had a garbage can lid in one hand and a kendo stick in the other. And he looked like fucking Spartacus. He looked like he was fighting off lions in the Roman Colosseum, just for a brief moment. I don't know why that stood out to me, but it did. That was the note that I made to myself. It must've been earlier um, in the morning when I did this. Um, I, I, look, if if you're a fan of, Spectacular, highly dangerous spots that make absolutely no sense and are not connected to anything related related to a real combat scenario or fight. If you don't care about that and all you want to do is see something spectacular and high risk and something you've never seen before, then you, you probably you know needed a cold shower and a cigarette after this because it was all of that and more. And I'm not minimizing it. It was fucking. Crazy, spectacular! Un, 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 I'd never seen anything quite like it. So, if that's your, if that's what scratches your itch, you were really, really happy about it. I, uh, it just took me out of it. I can't. Once you go so far with something, setting it up, a finished tables and cages and ladders and candlesticks and garbage cans list, Oh, my God, Lions, Tigers, fucking Bears, give me a jackhammer. Come on, give me a rusty crowbar. I need, oh, ball peen hammer. I mean, there's a point where, okay, it's it's enough. And for me, this surpassed that red line w- w- way, way too much. But I get that other people dig it. Cannot, you know, I don't know whether to praise Jeff Hardy or you know, wish he wouldn't have done some of the crazy shit that he did. Cause it's going to catch up to him. It already has, I'm sure. Um, you know, you can get away with it and you, you know, and, and Jeff was always a freak. Jeff could always get away with more than any average, you know, athlete. It just could, But if eventually, you know, the alarm goes off, your body changes, time catches up and he'll be paying for a lot of this for the rest of his life. And, you know, I don't, I don't envy him for that. But for this moment, for those of you that really love this kind of crazy shit, this was probably, you know, right up there with some of the best spots you've seen in a long time. The, you know, the rest of it, you know, thumbtacks high on my list of things I never want to have to look at again. I think it's dumb. Uh, it's not my. I was take that back. It's not dumb. If everybody else likes it, great. For me. The minute I see shit like that, it turns me off. I turn away from it. I'm no, I'm no longer, I no longer care because I'm seeing thumbtacks instead of story. I'm, I'm seeing a gimmick instead of stakes. I'm seeing a lot of things that don't register on my scale uh, because those things that do register for me don't exist in this match or this story. So I know let's use fire. Let's use thumbtacks. Oh, broken glass. That'll be really cool. Let's bring a fucking giant light bulb to the ring. Whatever. Um, it loses me, you know, the whole bit, you know, with the brass knuckles, uh, I get why we did it, I guess. Um, wasn't my proudest moment <laughs> Let's put it that way, but I guess it served its purpose. My only takeaway from it. And again, this is how I judge a match. Look at the audience. Don't listen to Dave Meltzer. Don't listen to Eric Bischoff. Don't listen to Conrad Thompson. Don't listen to anybody. Decide for yourself how you like something. And don't be too influenced by anybody else's opinion. But if you go back and you look at this, uh, if there were 3,000 people in the arena, if that's what you said at the beginning of the show, 3,500, whatever it yeah. was, uh, 3,200 of them were standing at the end. They were into it. Go Go watch any current product you choose. Come back to me and tell me, you know, uh, uh, how how much time the audience spends standing, you know, at the end of a match. Yeah, by that by that standard, it was a huge success. By a um, a critical, I guess, critiques or, or, or critics' point of view, probably was an abortion, but the crowd dug it, and I guess at the end of the day, that's what matters, right?
0: absolutely uh speaking of the crowd you go to the wrestling observer reader poll they gave it 64.9 percent thumbs up uh, only 12 percent thumbs down 22 percent thumbs in the middle so overwhelmingly positive the best match here uh, it's a runaway there's not even another vote for another match it's kurt angle and mr anderson Uh, unfortunately it's really not close for the worst match either it's the ladies sky and rain against love and tara I dug this man, you know, it. I, I didn't like that. Every match was a cage match, but it is sort of fun to, to get in your way back machine and go back and look at TNA and say, man, that was a pretty good show. And, and what if, what could have been, because there's so much talent. I, and, and by the way, again, you and I just signed up for the impact plus app. We don't have some sort of promo code. We didn't get a discount. We didn't get a hookup. Uh, but I think this is worth eight bucks a month, especially while we're all looking for something to do if you feel like you've sort of reached the end of your other streaming services, this is one I would recommend. How about you, Eric?
1: I would too. I, I I would too. And there is, you know, you mentioned the the TNA app. There's a lot of great stuff there, you know, prior to, to Hogan and I arriving and subsequent, you know, to it. And like I said, it's easy, you know, it gets a wrap, you know, and, and even, you know, I have my own personal issue. Um, with a lot of things, mostly because it's a missed opportunity. You know, the opportunities that TNA had were massive. they had so much support from Viacom, from Kevin K, from Spike TV, Scott Fishman at the time. And it, that, that support and that willingness to build the brand together was so horribly mismanaged in my opinion. Um, mm-hmm. That it, it frustrates me to this day, you know. When I get when I get shitty about TNA, it's not because of the product. It's not because of creative differences. It's no, none of that. It's because of the missed opportunity. They they there was a moment in time, in 2011, in 2012, in 2013, when Spike leaned forward so much. Viacom leaned forward so far was paying for so much. By the way, just to kind of you know, narrative bust here. Um, TNA never paid Eric Bischoff a dime. TNA never paid Hulk Hogan a dime. Spike TV did. Viacom did. And by the same, so same thing is probably true. I don't know this for a fact, but based on um, a a news article and an interview with a Spike or Viacom um, executive at the time who stated And I'm not quoting here. I'll have to go back and find it. But when it came to you know Sting's salary, Kurt Angle's salary, Hogan's salary, Bischoff's salary, those weren't those weren't expenses. They didn't hit the bottom line of TNA. They hit the bottom line of Spike TV. So you know, for the the narrative that you know Hogan put you know TNA out of business or Bischoff put TNA out of business because of overinflated salaries. There's a Rusty crowbar somewhere in a, in a garage is, you know, in a garage somewhere down your street. Your neighbor has one. go ask to borrow it. go fuck yourself with it because oh. it's not true. It's not true. You can keep repeating it. It doesn't make it true. Um, it, it, but the, the opportunities, you know the marketing um, that, that Spike spent and was, was re- reacted to almost with disdain by certain people within TNA high level people just amaze me the way, the, the way they, the way TNA treated and didn't treat their partner, their television partners and the opportunities that were missed as a result of it to this day, still get under my skin of it. Think about it. So I'm not going to think about it anymore. Not at all.
0: Well, let's like, think about, let's think about something fun, man. Let's think about what we got coming up on AdFreeShows.com. Of course, had you already been on adfreeshows.com, you would have gotten this show uh, early and ad free, but you would also be getting our April bonus show. Of course, our March bonus show, uh, where we really kicked things off here on Patreon was telling the story of Eric's quote unquote83 days in WWE. Uh, but at the end of this month we'll have AWA Super Clash 4, which was a pretty cool sm- pretty cool moment in time. But we've got some fun stuff coming up, including, I can't believe I found this on this TNA impact plus app. Our may bonus episode is Eric Bischoff in a tag team effort with Matt Hardy as his tag team partner, wrestling the young bucks. Holy shit. I forgot about that. Eric Bischoff wrestled the young bucks and we're going to watch it and talk about it together at dot com. Uh, We've got the rest of the year mapped out, some really tremendous stuff. We're also going to cover a lot of interesting AEW stuff uh, on adfreeshows.com. We'll revisit AEW All Out. We'll revisit their debut on TNT. Lots of fun stuff coming at adfreeshows.com. Don't forget, you get all these shows early and ad-free, including next week's show, Spring Stampede 2000. But then at the end of the month, on April 27th, we're going to revisit David Arquette and WCW. I can't believe this is happening. It's the 20 year anniversary of that. Stay tuned if you haven't already. Get it early. Get it ad free. Get it at adfreeshows.com. Until next week, he is at E Bischoff. I am at Hey Hey, it's Conrad, and we are out of time. We'll see you next week right here on 83 Weeks with Eric Bischoff. I've been telling you for a long time that SaveWithConrad.com can save you money, but don't take my word for it. Hey, good afternoon, Glenn. This is Dave Silva.
2: Hey, what's going on, Dave?
0: (laughs) How you doing, my friend? I'm doing well. We're um, putting these testimonials on the podcast, and if it's okay, um, I would like to use your story. Absolutely. Um, My mom had
2: been trying to get a refinance done for years, because uh, years ago, her and my dad ended up uh, into a uh, home equity loan and it had a really high interest rate on it. where We were talking like 6% almost. We originally went, we tried to go with a different company. We were in with them. They were getting us taken care of, had to have an appraisal done, and there was some issues with the appraisal that we had to get taken care of before they would approve it. Got all those done, and then when we went back to them, they have to finalize everything. They backed out on us. Oh, wow. Uh, And they said, we're not approving anything over $125,000 now. So originally when we started this process, my gut told me, call Conrad. And I didn't listen to my gut then. So the second time around, you know, I said, I think I'm going to call Conrad this time. We ended up working with Derek Jones and he is absolutely a treasure. Uh, I can't say enough good things about Derek. The the work he did for us, he was always available. Anytime I had a question, I could call or text or email, and he was always there for us. He met every need that we could possibly have. have. Um, I can't. I mean, I just can't tell you how overjoyed we we were with the experience. And you know, I highly recommended him to people I know. I tried to get my daughter to go get a hold of you guys about she's looking to buying a new home here soon
0: and- so what are you waiting for find out how much money you can save right now for free you don't need perfect credit or money out of your pocket even credit scores in the 500s can be approved and if we can't save you money we won't waste your time but because we're licensed in more than 40 states we can help more families than ever before find out how much money you can save right now for free at SavewithConrad.com. oh and did i mention you could skip your next two house payments Hurry to savewithconrad.com.
1: NMLS number 65084. Equal housing lenders. Woo! John brings his skewed sense of humor. Jeff brings tips to cut strokes off your next round. Together, it's Those Weekend Golf Guys. They'll pay a lot of money to PXG and Titles and Callaway and on and on. Right? How many yards do you think you're going to pick up with that extra? I think I can get an extra 5 to 10. What if I give you 15 to 20? (laughs) You pay me more. Jeff Smith teaches on a sliding scale. (laughs) Those Weekend Golf Guys, the podcast. Part of the Believe Network. Just search BLEAV on YouTube or wherever you listen.